Yes! Yes! You're the man now, dog! So we can go ahead and get started. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of White People Won't Save You. This is the podcast where we deconstruct these white savior films and then recontextualize them through a black and POC lens. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Clark. And I'm the other one, Cameron Mason. And we've got a movie today that is a curiosity, I guess, for me, because it's from a director that I I, I like mm-hmm. uh, and enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the movie is uh, all over the place. There's a lot of things yes. going on and it's, it's, it's kind of a ride in and of itself. Um, this is a curious case. Yeah, this is a curious case, but we're, we're very uh, lucky and, and happy to be joined by a great guest. Uh, you might know her work from just a lot of stuff. You know, she does a lot of different uh, writing, uh, mostly TV film critiques, um, also is one of the hosts of the wonderful So Here's What Happened podcast. Uh, This is Carolyn Hines. Hey, thank you so much, Jordan and Cameron, for having me on. I was actually quite surprised to see your your invitation. I was like, ooh, because I don't really honestly get asked to be guests on a podcast very often, but it's always fun. I just love chatting about movies in general. So it's always great to be invited. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I think we, we definitely love having different um film critics and tv critics just from like all backgrounds just because like we love film and we love tv and like pop culture right. and all that stuff but like for y'all it's like a job you know <laughs> it's like what you do every day you know it's not just oh i enjoy watching a movie but like i have to watch it i have to think about it on a critical sense but then i also mm-hmm. have to think about it from an industry sense of like what does this mean in a, in a much larger context. Um, but tell us a little bit about the So Here's What Happened podcast. And then also tell us a little bit about of just some things recently that you've you've watched and you've enjoyed. Um, okay, so I'm a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. I'm kind of required to say that because it is important to mention my accreditation because it's actually very hard to come by. Um, um, I am the co-host, as you mentioned, of So Here's What Happened podcast, which I started with my friend, Lanisha Campbell, in mid-2018, 
2018. We started it after Avengers Endgame. That's how I have to date mm. it because I never remember the year exactly. <laughs> but I would say we did our first episode was about our re- was a recap and review of Avengers Endgame because we had a lot to say about that film. Um, yeah, very we're all there. <laughs> so much. I'm very proud of and happy of what Nanisha and I have accomplished in this time. We both become like film critics because she didn't really start out to be as a critic. Like, you know, like okay. I, I was a critic when we started, but she wasn't. I know she started doing more uh, writing about, not necessarily films, but because anime and manga is more her forte. So that's what she covers mostly. And I, and our podcast is kind of set up that way where I do more film, more critical film critiques of film, multi-genre films and TV mm-hmm. shows and occasionally books, whereas hers is more a lot along the line of manga and anime, Japanese and from and those international, because like anime, as we call it now, isn't strictly only Japanese. You can have like anime right. um, films and shows from people like in South America, which where there were some that were covered um, that were produced by Netflix and other studios. Mm-hmm. Um, like, um, Lord, forgive me. Just remember the name. I was going to call it Trem, but it's not. <laughs> but it's kind of like that. But we saw so our, our podcast kind of breaks it down. We do monthly where we break out, where we bring our, our own personal topics for the month. And then we discuss and sometimes we have the same shows and topics that we want to talk about. And then sometimes we don't, but it's a, it's a great way to learn about what we like and what we each and what each other likes and what we don't like. And also I, I think to give our audience a more general and more wide um, base of, um, of, of opinions on different, of, on different genres, because like everyone has a very wide base of, um, of what interests them with, um, I call it screen content. So there's screen content and then there's the, right. And like not many podcasts are actually set up that way. And we are one of the few run by black women that talks about a lot about genre and um, films and shows and books as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's not many, but there's more now being made by, by women, black women who do manga, you know, and who do these kind of genres. But I also do, um, I kind of specialize in Asian films and dramas. And um, so that's, so here's what happened. And we've also branched out into doing covering film festivals. So we've covered TIFF. We've covered, um, I, I covered TIFF, Sundance, Self by Self with, I've done Comic Con. Um, nice. I did two years before the pandemic, 2018 and 2019. <laughs> who, who knew? Who knew what would have happened? <laughs> but I've done, I've done, a, and I've done the New York Asian Film Festival, the Toronto Asian Film Festival. And I, as a, per, as a film critic myself, I write about a whole bunch of films. I call myself a film culture critic, wherein that I don't only strictly review films. I kind of like, when I write my pieces, I kind of like look at it from a more critical, analytical, and a culture perspective, because yes. I talk a lot about yeah. racism and, and gender and disability and how, how people of different backgrounds, when we watch film, how we can perceive the information. So it's not just strictly like, oh, this film is good, this film is bad. It's about like, it, it's a message that the film the film creator and the writers mm-hmm. and the actors is a message they were trying to send through the, the medium of film being received the way they expect it to from people of diverse backgrounds. And being a right. Black woman, being a woman from the Caribbean, from Barbados, being a woman who, with, with a disability, you know, being an immigrant, because I live now in um, Toronto, like I, I have all of these different things that make up a part of my identity and they help me to relate to film differently to other people. And I think that's what makes me, I think, special. And what I love about being a critic, because I bring something, I think, completely different to most other critics out there. Absolutely. And that's so necessary, too, I think, as we kind of get further and further into these spaces where media has always been a big part of culture, specifically, you know, North American culture. Um, but like, now that there's more and more voices kind of penetrating these spaces and you know you're you're seeing 
again, a lot of companies make promises or make, you know, proclamations about we want to tell these stories and have this representation. Um, you know, like, I think I'm trying to remember, was it Sundance? There was some film uh, festival not that long ago where, like, Black journalists were like, this is wild. Like, everything happening here is wild just because, like, you know, the response that these films are getting, you know, from creators of color, from particularly, you know, predominantly white journalists are just like, are we watching the same movie? And and then the way that, you know, they felt they were being treated, you know, not necessarily being given access to some of the more premier spaces. Uh. It's just kind of like, you know, like what like how like the importance of just having you know multiple perspectives um you know particularly if we're gonna make these films and these tv shows and things that are supposed to be appealing to a wide spectrum of people but then the people who are because you're talking you know carolyn specifically about something like rotten tomatoes right Mm -hmm. where it's just like that is is people take that for granted you know in terms of just like people really don't take too much stock in like what you know a movie gets but a lot of people do it but a lot of people will go to Rotten Tomatoes and say oh this has like a 20 something percent I'm not gonna watch that or even like that's got a 50 percent I'll wait until something you know better comes out you know and like if those movies are not even to be saying like unfairly just but again we can talk about certain reviews for turning red and certain <laughs> reviews for everything everywhere all at once where people are just like well i just don't see myself in this movie so is it really that good and it's like well maybe it just wasn't for you but also not being able to see yourself in the film i think is just one of those weird specifically from a white critic's perspective of like that that value judgment of like well i'm not being centered so all of a sudden this loses value where the rest of us watch a movie and it's like I'm well, I'm not even in this. I mean, we're about to talk about one of those, but like, yeah. you know, it's just like um, for you, Carolyn, like having been, you know, a critic for as long as you have and kind of navigated all those spaces. Do you feel like, you know, your ability to have access to maybe not even like what you would call the the preeminent spaces for for critics, but more so just like. One, you know, like have people been coming to you now as just like, oh, we really value your perspective about, you know, such and such. We love to you to write about. We love for you to talk about. Whereas maybe like a few years ago, like there wasn't that at all. Um, but also, you know, when you when you were getting, you know, say like invites to certain mm-hmm. film festivals or like just in those spaces, like, do you feel like um, people are are giving you the same credibility as you know a lot of these other critics who probably it's not even that their views or their you know like uh what what they are bringing to the table is is lesser than but it's just like but they 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 fit they check all the boxes right of what you know you you would think of for a film critic whereas again more more black women more people with disabilities more queer people more um you know just people of color in those spaces you know we we are breaking the boundaries down and so like there's still certain hurdles that we have to jump over so that's a long meandering no no i'm kind of the same way when i ask questions too um but yeah. it's not as meander i get it because i i started doing film criticism or t or screen content criticism at the color because they include film and tv in 2017 and then i was working writing and i even worked i was even getting paid um for a site black girl nurse that's a whole other story. But when I was writing with them, I was covering more TV and I did I did film occasionally. And I was I I wasn't getting invitations to me directly because any any 
uh, pitches that were sent to us, like for coverage, like people, like publicists would send um, um, requests to say, could we get coverage for this film? Or like, you know, this person is um, working in a space like representing like black youth, you know, like um, we would love someone to write upon our film or a book and that kind of stuff. And they would pitch to the website and like that's how it happened. And like any, um, like when I did set visits, like I visit Pixar and stuff, like I got that because the site was known and like, you know, the publicists would reach out to the site and say, okay, we will, we're doing a, a, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, why am I drawing a blank? Excuse me. So like, I, for, I, I have to say, because like, I have MS and like, you might know, but like for the audience, if you hear me pausing, is that I'm trying to find my words and like, I have cognitive impairment. So like that kind of affects my ability to find words and my language. So I'm, the word, fine. The, the word is junket. Yes. That's what I'm yes. looking at for so like they, they would say, well, could we have a junket for like for the one I went to it was like Coco. So we want to invite um mm. like um like two representatives from from BGN to come and like attend the junket because like they wanted diverse, you know, coverage. So they wanted black women, like they knew the site was for black women, so like they wanted people to come and cover it. So they would pitch to the site then. I went and I the site didn't fall apart, but like a lot of us left the site because of like issues with the with the, the EIC and how the site was being run. And I, I became freelance in 2018 at the beginning of 2018 and I wasn't getting any like um invitations or anything like that I wasn't getting like publicists reaching out to me um I wasn't getting invited to junkets but what happened was the 2018 and that was the same year as I said at the beginning when I started so here's what happened with Anisha and um I covered I, I just like on a leap of faith I um I was I I went to um, LA to on vacation and while I was there, um, I was asked to cover SDCC on behalf of um, comicbook um, comicbooks.com, and they were like, "Okay, you're there, so like, would you like to cover Comic Con for us?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah sure, right?" And, and and then while I was in LA, legit, I was sitting at my friend's table and I I got an email about TIFF. And I was like, I would love to cover TIFF, right? And again, and on, that, on a leap of faith, I messaged Lanisha. I'm like, what do you think about me applying to TIFF to cover TIFF as a creditive press on behalf of the podcast? And she messaged me in back, right? That was like legit, just like on a random, I said, my friend Nancy's um, dining table. I was at my friend Laura's dining table and it was getting ready to interview um, a writer, um, Nancy Wang Yuan, and she wrote a book about called um, about called Real Inequalities. It's about um, ra- um, you know, racial discrimination towards Asian people <laughs> in Hollywood. So, like, I was getting yeah. ready to interview Nancy that first, and Nancy was legit my very first interview for Carolyn Talks, which is my sub podcast of Series What Happened. And I and like Laura, who was my friend, who was um, who who whose house I was at, she was like, "Do it, Carolyn, do it." Uh, I love Lauren. Lauren's um, very, she's one of those people that always tell me, like, do it. But she's like, just go and do it. So she was like, do it, Caroline. So I messaged Lanisha and it was like, I, I emailed Tiff and I got like a response in like the day after where the publicist was was like, yeah, sure. Just do like a self-appointed editor letter, you know, saying you're for the podcast, mm-hmm. like what your intended coverage was would be for. And I did that. And this is kind of long-winded, but it kind of does, it answers your question because this is how yeah, I started yeah. getting more invitations for film festivals and getting publicists reaching out to me was because I covered Tiff. Right. Okay. And because I did, I had, I took that leap of faith. I messaged, I, Lanisha and I were like, let's just do it. Um, I got to, I, and this was the same year where TIFF was starting their, um, they call it their diversity initiative, inclusion initiative. So this is where they had an inclusion initiative specifically to, um, to provide coverage opportunities and press accreditation for 
for uh, critics and, and journalists from marginalized backgrounds. Right. So I was like, you know, I, I, I'm a black woman. I have a podcast. I'm disabled. You know, like very few. There's I don't I would love mm-hmm. to know exactly what the statistics are of the <laughs> critics, because I think I'm one of the very few that hit all yeah. of those boxes. And when I went to TIFF, like I was signing up doing a registration and I met um, one of the publicists there. She's like, you are probably the only black female critic and journalist here who's accredited and who's doing, who has a podcast that you're the only one representing your own podcast. Like most are representing mm-hmm. outlets, you know, either as a freelancer or like yeah, they yeah. got commissioned by an outlet to like things. I was the only one at the time. And in 2019, it was the same thing. And it was just like, to me, that's so important because that's what has helped me to keep doing this work and keep doing this job because it's very hard. It is not easy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because I, and because I was able to say when I, whenever I pitched an editor, you know, or anytime I took another face of saying, I want to try to get accreditation for Sundance or for the um, Toronto Real Asian Film Festival, I could then put in my, in my little description where it would say like, and a bit about myself, I am, I have, I'm an accredited film critic and journalist who has covered international film festivals such as TIFF, who has covered film fe- in, like international festivals such as Sundance. And being able to say that lends a lot of credence to, sure does, yeah. to my background and to what I'm saying, you know, because I could say, oh, I'm a freelance journalist and editor, but if I didn't have much bylines at that time, like like editors, people aren't going to really like look at what you're saying because a lot of it does have to do with where your byline is. And when I was working for BGN, um, when I was working for BGN, my, that was the only byline I had. But then once I started doing freelance, I started writing for Sci-Fi Wire. You know, I started doing a lot of coverage. Like one of my most popular pieces at the time was about Black Panther. I read about the MCU. I'm like, why, why, why? I'm like, what is up with all the destruction in the MCU? That was one of my most popular uh, pieces. Then, then I wrote about Black Panther. Then they wrote for the Root. You know, and then I started like getting more confidence pitching to other outlets. And a lot of my confidence came from being able to say I I covered TIFF for my own podcast. Like being able to say mm. I did that for my own podcast just so much for me uh, for my confidence and then I did it for Sundance and it for Real Asian and then in um 2020 because we went digital I did like I did um Fantasia Fest you know I did um the New York Real Asian Film Fest I spoke to film critics and film creators from all around the world I got to interact with more people and that's being able to do all of that coverage has helped me to get more coverage opportunities where more editors have actually been like we would like to would you be? Would you like to write a piece about this? Like I wrote um, a piece for disability visibility for Alice Wong, and she messaged me and she's like, and I because I did a thread about Denny Villeneuve, and she knows that I'm disabled mm-hmm. and she knows I have MS, and she's like, would you like to write a piece about your thread for my site? You know, and I've had editors who like, would you like to write a, like a thread? Like I my very first piece for a Canadian outlet, the Toronto Star, just like um. We're in May now because today's May the 5th. So at the beginning of what, April? No, March, because it was after the Oscars. <laughs> Time is relative. So it was after the Oscars. It's, yeah. I wrote a thread <laughs> about um about the re- about people's reactions to what happened at the Oscars, you know, between Will Smith and thing. But my thread was more about how people were but my thread was more about how people were this um were kind of like not acknowledging the ableism at the massage and that was displayed that night and kind of like dismissing black women's uh, black women's and disabled black women's opinions on that matter. And the editor for the Toronto right. Star, she's like, I saw your thread. I would love you to turn this thread into a piece. No, I want to give you the opportunity to expand on your parts because I think it's important that we get more. And, I, and that's, that, that happens more and more. And because so much yeah. of my, my work is done through social media, through Twitter in particular, 
God damn you, Elon Musk. You better not ruin this for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've gotten a lot of like um, opportunities because of my visibility on on Twitter and on social media, but also because I'm so vocal, you know, and also because I'm yeah, exactly. so opinionated, which is something I still worry about. I do like so. This I message my friends and like I sometimes worry that I'm too opinionated on like too on, like not on too many subjects, but like I'm I'm always like because there's a saying in Barbados where we say I take up people fire rage. And that's where I hate seeing people being bullied. I hate unfairness. Mm -hmm. And if I think I, something's wrong, like sometimes I don't say, I don't have this opinion. I don't have to say everything on, on every subject, but there's certain ones that really just, just like really gets to me. And I, and I have to say something. And then I'd be like, am I too opinionated? Am I, and then people be like, no, we are glad that you're saying this. We are glad that at least someone is saying this. And like people say this, and I'm like, and people are like, we are glad you're using your platform and your visibility and your voice to speak to these issues because they're like many of us are thinking the same thing you are saying but we're just not saying it you know and especially yeah. for it might feel a lot of critics especially a lot of critics of color black women like there a lot of them are generally concerned about access because people don't understand like you do get blacklisted in this industry you 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 it, it like it is not as if like there's going to be a, a memo sent out saying like this person is invited but you know because you stop getting invitations for coverage right you know you stop getting invitations to junkets you know, like, and like, it happens. And I know a lot of people are worried about that, but I'm, and I don't blame them. But sometimes I do just feel like you can't keep being quiet because then nothing in this industry will change if you stay quiet. And, and I, and I remember I said, I made a thread recently and someone was like, I'm so happy you said that. And I said, I'm 38 years old. I've survived four major surgeries. I have a, I have a disability. I have a condition where that at one day might rob me of my ability to walk. I'm like, right, right. and it might even kill me because MS is MS can be fatal. I'm like, at this point in my life, <laughs> I don't care who gets offended when I'm speaking the truth. You know, I don't care if you think I need to be quiet. You can say what you want to say in the DMs, fine. But then don't be trying to subtweet me and be sly and be and and try to be like trying to shush me um, when I when I know I'm right. When you know I'm right. I'm like, I don't really got to care what these um, studios or these studio execs or these writers or these directors or these editors or whatever. I'm like, they don't pay my bills. They don't feed me. They don't support me. They're right. not, you represent yourself. Exactly. I'm representing myself. I'm going to speak up for me and I'm speaking for others who want to say something about, they, about their affairs. I'm like, if you guys want to keep your keep your, your shade to the to the chat, to the DMs, that's your business. Because all you care about is access and getting to smell it in these celebrities' face. These celebrities don't care too much about us. You know, all they care about yep. is what how we can promote them. You know, all they care about is like we say nice things about them. So like they appear to be like nice to the audience. That's what they care about. They care about perception. I hope people see that. They don't mm -hmm. care about us. They don't care about if we're struggling, if we don't have access, if like we are getting shut up by publicists or studios. They don't care about that. So like, why, why should I care about them and their opinions on that? Like they're helping me, you know, like <laughs> at the end of the day, they don't feed me. They don't pay my bills. Right. Well, I think all we could say to that is... <laughs> Just bars. <laughs> just, yeah, you know, like, uh, well, we definitely appreciate the work that you do and definitely appreciate, For you sure. know, like, you know, what you bring to the space because it is very, very, very necessary. Thank you. Um, and we, we'd like to turn that eye to the movie that you chose. <laughs> for this week can you tell everybody what what film we watched uh, for this episode i picked the film finding forrester <laughs> directed by gus van zandt mm. and written by mike rich starring sean connery and rob brown and anna paquin f murray yeah. abraham buster rhymes who i completely forgot was buster. even in this film until he turned up like with buster 
and my yeah. co-pick and it's a whole ensemble cast but yeah that's the film i picked and it was released in 2000 so this film is today 22 years old i know yeah. it's crazy to think about some of that um and just to add a little bit onto that you know it uh had a budget of 43 million dollars which seems insane when you look at the movie Which because seems like insane. I can't imagine we'll we'll say this until the end of time. Everything everywhere all at once had a budget of twenty-five million dollars. <laughs> um, the thing is like, the budget may seem yeah. kind of insane when you think about it. Don't forget there's inflation now, one, but back yeah. then you yeah. also gotta think of who the cast was. They had Sean Connery for goodness sakes. Like he like they gotta pay him for his appearance. I guess they had to pay him half the budget. They gotta pay yeah. him a good set of money. You know, and and like sometimes I think some people do forget it when they talk about budget. Like it does have to pay the cast, pay the production crew, pay production costs, which yeah, includes sure. building sets, any um rights to music. So I always think about this. Some people say, "Oh my god, this thing costs so much money." I'm like, "Yeah, there's so much money that go- all of that money has to be accounted for." Like it, everything we see on screen and everything we don't see, that's where mm-hmm. that forty five million plus would have gone. But yeah, Sean Connery, yeah. just him alone. What a big, maybe maybe half, maybe half. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope Busta and, and Rob got some of that money too. Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, well, because it, it did have a, a box office of eighty million dollars. Yeah, so, it did pretty know, good at the box like, office for the type of film that it yeah. is. It was it was a success, and you know, just talking a little bit about Gus Van Sant, like interesting career trajectory. You know, what I mean, because when Very he comes meandering. out. Yeah, he comes out and he is very much so not just a a director, but he is, you know, an auteur in a sense with the movies that he's making that are very much, you know, because in the in the 90s, you know, when he's really coming up, that's the era of almost that like, I don't know in my mind what I call it the VHS film, but it's very much so like that more like when you think about like, um that style that's definitely more grounded and more like realistic Mm -hmm. and even more so like it's it's not it doesn't have the hollywood look and the hollywood sheen and you know Mm -hmm. all of that stuff um and so you know he's got movies like drugstore cowboy like my own private idaho uh and then in 1997 He's got Goodwill Hunting, which is like the big, big, you know, film for him. Uh, mm-hmm. Oscar nomination, all that stuff. Uh, then in 1998, very curiously, he's I forgot. I blocked out of my mind that he I did not <laughs> the director of Psycho, the shot for shot remake shot of Psycho, shot remake. <laughs> um, which oh. was just a, a one of the most bizarre films ever made. Uh, I kind of like it. I don't hate it. It's, I, but, I wish I, I wish I could. See, I don't think I've seen that film. Like I was looking at his filmography on IMDb, and I'm and I was going through, and I'm like I have not seen. I think good. I think Finding Forrester and Goodwill Hunting <laughs> are the only films by him I've seen. Well, it's well, funny because I feel like he has like a three act structure to his filmography, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have the early films, you have Drugstore Cowboy, you know, even Malanoche. Uh, yeah. even cowgirls get the blues and then he became like you know an indie darling so they gave him studio pictures and he was making the satire to die for with nicole kidman which yeah. i kind of actually really like there's good will hunting right after that the shot for shot psycho after that and then here's finding forrester right in the mix of all those like studio movies that he's doing where he's already established like a very specific independent voice 
yeah very specific artistic voice something it's like a naturalistic he's going for it like that videotape style that naturalistic observed style but kind of all that gets eschewed yeah or it's like it's well there he i guess he's trying to strike a balance here in right. finding forrester where it's a observed film starring studio actors with studio <laughs> budget with a very studio looking production uh it's very it's very interesting yeah well i think um it's it's also interesting um that like when you think about uh the way that this happens a lot right you know with with studio directors um who kind of get these opportunities they come from these indie back i mean we're seeing it now the difference Mm -hmm. now is though that this tends to go from like you made a you made a 20 million dollar film to like a marvel movie right like it's it's that jump to like this. that's what's happening now in the 2020s yeah. yeah you know where it used to be like oh we'll give you a shot at a prestige you know, whatever, like, here's your, here's your chance to make these movies. And so you've got that. And then you've got like, um, even after that, you know, he goes on to make milk, he goes on to make, you know, elephant, he goes on to make, um, you know, last days and, uh, you know, some other part too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, he's a very interesting director because I think that he is not singular, you know, but like not singular because I feel like there's a lot of people who do him and kind of do him better, honestly. Yeah, I would say Richard Linklater does right. Gus Van a little better than that's Gus what Van I was Zandt. thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and even just in the sense of like, you know that that style of filmmaking, um, I don't I don't say I wouldn't say it's gone, you know, but there's definitely like yeah, but it pe- feels it feels gone. It, I know yeah. what, I know what you're talking to. Yeah, I know what you're speaking yeah. to. So, you know, he kind of got these big opportunities and it's not like he's done. I mean, he's still making movies, but like, um, you know, I think about somebody Uh, like, (laughs) (laughs) like who, who, who listening to this podcast saw, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Well, I mean, I'm not not saying that he's, (laughs) he's popping like he used to be, but I'm saying that he, it's not like he's completely out of work and and doesn't get to do things for sure, for sure. You know, because I think a lot about, you know, one of my favorite directors is Robert Altman. Oh, and yeah. like, you know, his movies are are singular. Like, you know, a Robert Altman film when you're watching it. You know what I mean? Like, even the matter. even the studio ones, you know, yeah. a Robert Altman movie when you're watching it. Yeah. And I think Gus Van Sant kind of like once he made that switch, because Goodwill Hunting and we'll we'll talk about this when you do the five minutes. Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. This is Goodwill Hunting. I've never seen Goodwill Hunting. I didn't see Goodwill Hunting. I didn't see Dead Poet Society. Still haven't uh, seen either one of those. Wow. <laughs> and there's and there's another film that's kind of I think Satterhouse Rules. I think all three of those are kind of like, I've seen Satterhouse Rules. Yeah, movies that I'm just like I don't know if they are literally the same movie, but they in my mind they feel <laughs> like the same film. Yeah, um, it's true. You know, but this from everything I've heard is is. Goodwill Hunting substitute a black kid, uh, yeah. basically. And uh, I guess if you want to, if you want to get into these five minutes, Cameron, it is like it's a. I think you can do it. You know what I mean? I think like, I can do it too. It's just there's very, and we'll get into the nuances of it when we do the real discussion. So yeah, because I think there's there's definitely stuff to break down and get into, but I think the the plot of the movie is, I wouldn't say fairly straightforward, but like a Gus Van Sant movie, like there is a little, there are sections that are just kind of like, okay, you know, like I get it, you know, I see what's going on here. 
Um, but yeah, I guess I'll set the timer up for you. All right. Um, and I'll set I'll set the prayers up for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting on my knees. Yeah, we'll get into it. Um, all right, three, two, one, go. All right, so we're in the Bronx. We see, uh, well, well, first of all, <laughs> I mean, don't excise this from the five minutes. We'll keep it in there, but golly, this okay, no, no, no. Sequence. I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop because I almost want to in- interject in the five minutes uh, with this the, opening the, sequence, the entirety of the rap, like what inside the fuck? Can I? And also, this is a this is not an evergreen reference, so maybe this gets gets cut out, but. Does that kid who rapped, does that not remind you? I don't know if you've seen last week's Atlanta. Yeah. Oh, no, I haven't seen that yet. I'm sorry. The one where they're in England and having the discussion about black culture. No. Yeah. I, my Unfortunately, we could talk. This kind of plays into uh, this movie, but the last episode I saw was the reparations one. Okay. So the next one, this kid who does the rap. You'll know who he reminds you of when you get to this episode. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Let me. I have. I pulled up the lyrics. For some reason, the lyrics. Yeah, pull up the a, lyrics. Let's talk about them. For Let's some reason, the this. lyrics to this rapper on Genius. <laughs> Fuck out of here! Are they? Yeah. I don't know. Wait, if these wait, wait. Are verbatim. Let's, go to, let's get the link. Let's get the link. Hold on. So, it it starts with this rap, and it's like, I, like no context. Like the movie basically opens up with like like a mizzen scene of like ghetto life more or less you know just black people living their lives oh but and... don't forget don't forget the movie opens with a marker so we're mm. seeing that this is a movie yeah, that's yeah, very, yeah, yeah that's a choice yes um and you have like this kid just kind of you know around project buildings and he's rapping he's the uh, most light-skinned person they could find yeah. to do this rap <laughs> Um, but just a few choice lyrics that I was yeah. just because like I hit him I with heard, some of these bars. <laughs> I heard them because I played it twice because I was trying to like I had the captions on and I was I, I was did too to I did too if they were matching up with what he was saying. Um, <laughs> so just some choice lyrics. So run from the truth and you might mm. you might get boost. Ooh, My desert ooh. goose will abuse and misuse. Yes, you're yes. Bulletproof to watch you spit red juice when your bones rip loose bars um there was another part that i was just like what do you say <laughs> wait hold on because then uh oh man so you guys better realize inflammation is what you facing oof oof this is okay here's here's the one that i was like bruh and imagine this guy <laughs> so, <laughs> he's so inoffensive in his like pele pele's oh my god all right check it out all right <clears throat> Niggas that's full of it. Bite the bullet and get their lit, hit, and split. Because even seeds could eat within this apple. <laughs> Take that deaf poetry jam. But he's rap, you know what I mean? So it's not even like a spoken word poetry. Like he's rapping on the quarter. So it's doing it like he's doing the acapella yeah. verse. Right. It ends with this. And this was Oof. the part that I was just like, huh? From <laughs> hell, I'm armed well. Test the best. I got a metal to chest execution style <laughs> sentence to death no other no choice. other choice weapons, weapons are useless are useless because verse submersed with the with voice his voice so that doesn't even rhyme 
But I got a <laughs> I, I I got a medal to chest. Yeah, I got a medal to so did you get <laughs> shot or do you have a bulletproof vest on? Or that cuz that when I when I was looking at the um the subtitles I was like, "Do you mean medal like M E D A L or are you saying medal like gun to I got I didn't. Yeah, I mean, low key, this guy could be like Jay Z with the triple entendres. We don't know. Yeah, I was like, "Are you Iron Man? Do you have like an arc reactor like on your chest? <laughs> like what? What does any of this mean?" But I'm, it's, yeah, I'm, it's such like an empty rap. Yeah, it's like it, it's almost like they told but, him to rap. But it's the kind of rap that white people would see and say, "Oh, Ooh, you know what I mean? Yeah, like what that's... a lyrical, spiritual miracle." Yeah, I mean, it's not even like you know, people take shots at common all the time. I am, I am a common yes. apologist, as um, am I. Just as because I. you know, look, go back and listen to Water for Chocolate. Go back and listen to B, you know, yeah, Electric or, Circus, yeah, or even like the first album. You know, like Common can rap. I used know, to love like, her. He he yeah. does this. <laughs> So, but but it's this. It's still the same thing today when he's on the Jimmy Fallon show, and Jimmy Fallon's giving him words, and it's like, whoa! Like he could rhyme words together. This is yeah. crazy. What the Mad Libs rap? <laughs> uh, it's that kind of rap where it's just kind of like anybody who knows hip hop. It's not like this kid is like the worst, but you're just kind of no, like, no, what? <laughs> but here's the thing for me, because so he raps, and we're getting all these artsy shots of like the first three minutes of this movie the opening credits has almost zero to do with the movie other yeah. than like painting mise-en-scene the bronx right? we're on the bronx the, the bronx is it's crazy there's and it's not even that crazy it's really just like like i said art artful shots so like there's these two women they're, mm-hmm. they're kicking with each other but then in the background are like the public housing towers yeah or you got like kids playing around in front of a bodega and all that's well and good and his rapping is like fine. He's on the beat. At yeah, least. it's all right. Thank God. But what is it about? And does it have much to do with like any of the themes of the movie or any of the plot points it's, of the movie? It's street poetry, Cameron. Ugh. It's the voice of the streets. Gus was like, I need him to feel it. I need bars. Yeah. <laughs> I need bars. <laughs> um, well, I'll start your time up again. But <laughs> I just had to pause because that was. I. So. We paused uh, the movie, man, yeah. to another, just to understand what was going on. Yeah, another just note for people at home. I watched this on, I can't even remember what the name of it is now. because it, It's I, called Freebie. Uh, yeah. I watched it okay. too. Okay, yeah, IMDb <laughs> changed its name to some dumbass shit, which, like, <laughs> did they get bought out? Is there a reason they changed it from IMDb TV to this? Because this doesn't even sound like a real service. You know what I mean? This it sounds like one of those doesn't. things. <laughs> it sounds like one of those things you buy a TV and the TV comes with like fake cable that plays like <laughs> Kitchen Confidential over and over and over again. Or like <laughs> Diners and Drive-Ins. Well, because even like there's multiple, because we've watched movies on stuff like Pluto and, you know, other things, which are These based... movies deserve no better, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but like there are these services that are literally just like, look, we got rights to shit and you can watch it here. You know, but like, you want to watch Brother Bear? Yeah, here you go. <laughs> Tubi is the top tier of those, right? Tubi yeah, is the yeah. one that I'm just like, all right. Tubi actually has some stuff I might want to watch. Tubi be hitting sometimes. They got the, the like they'll fuck around and have like you know 
super cop without the subtitles, you know? Yeah, but Tubi, Tubi also has hood classics, surprisingly. I don't know True what... They got uh, dead presidents, I thought. Yeah, Tubi, for some reason, was like, black people want free shit, and we know that, so we're going to give some of these movies that you might want to watch. Do you want to watch... Uh, What's the what's the um, Jet Li DMX movie? I was watching that the other day. Uh, Romeo Must Die. No, that was Aaliyah. There was, oh they, no, they were in another one. DMX no, was right. in that movie. Is that Exit Wounds? I think so. Yeah, they had Exit Wounds. I was just like, okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, I'm down. Yeah, IMDb TV has like whatever, but it's a, it's also not a good app because yeah. when I was looking for this movie i just clicked on i thought because i clicked on it because i didn't recognize it as imdb tv so i thought i had to click on it to download the app and then the movie started playing and i couldn't stop it so i just had to listen to the whole (laughs) rap and i was just like i don't want to i my brain is not ready for this i don't want to engage with this right now um oh man this kid does this rap, Cameron. I'll start your time up again. Uh, what yeah, happens this... after that? <laughs> sorry for the tangent, but yeah. Not, at, not. Don't be sorry. We we needed to have that conversation. Um. Yes. All right. So after this atrocious rap, <laughs> where uh, we find uh, we find Jamal, you know, playing basketball with his friends out, you know, on a Bronx torn down court. It's looking rough. Uh, and then they look up at this lone building that sits on a corner. You know, very, very, uh, the Bronx had burned, and this is what's left. Uh, so we look up at the top floor of this building, and there's a guy. We even see the POV of the guy who's, uh, looking out on the city beneath him with, with binoculars. And they're talking like, what's he doing up in that building? I don't know. He's just a crazy old guy that lives up in that building. That's nuts. Blah, blah, blah. We move on. We move on. Uh, that night, they decide to uh, go up in that man's apartment and take something to, as proof that they went up in there. So Jamal is dared by his friends to go up in that apartment. He goes up in there, and he looks around, and the walls are just covered in books. There's papers all over the place, typewriters. Uh, it's, it's looking like a place of a recluse. Uh, and as he starts to read some of the words, boom, a figure pops up, and he's terrified, and he runs out of there, and he leaves his backpack. Uh, so he leaves his backpack and the next day when they go out and play basketball, uh, his backpack is hanging in the window. So they, uh, see, they they still play ball. He plays ball until his friends leave and he goes up to the building and the backpack is tossed down to him. So he decides to investigate, decides to go up to the building and knock on the door and, you know, ask why he kept the, kept the backpack. The other, the man on the other side of the wall, at uh, on the other side of the door, says, "Well, I need you to write 5,000 5, words on how to stay the hell out of my home." Jamal actually does that, and he returns the next day with five thousand words on why he should stay the fuck out. Back to school, Jamal is a C plus student. He's doing okay, uh, but he's exceptional when it comes to writing. Exceptional. And he's offered a place at a prestigious private school, the Mailer Callow School of Manhattan. So he decides to go there, and he can. And the the <laughs> the white man who accepts him at the school is so excited to have him because he's a genius writer and he's also a genius level basket basketball player. He's great at basketball, so you know they were <laughs> chomping at the bit, drooling to yeah. have this kid. At the- school so they get Jamal into the school he takes a little tour with his friend Anna Paquin 
uh, or Claire in this movie. Mm-hmm. Claire takes him around to school, shows him around, shows him the cool classes that he can be taking. Uh, and in their English class at the school, they're reading a book, Avalon Landing, uh, by uh, author uh, William Forrester. So they're like, all right, I've read this book. He's, he's telling Claire, I've read this book. Claire's like, I love this book. Uh, they're getting to know each other, you know, over the book and over classes. And Jamal's like, okay, well, I think I might actually go here. I might check it out. And Jamal's writing actually, like, gets better while he's actually at the school. Under the, uh, under the tutelage of Robert Crawford, uh, who is his professor, played by F. Murray Abraham, who gets the Salieri treatment in this movie again, but we'll get to yeah, that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, Jamal befriends uh, this recluse guy who's teaching him how to write and teaching him how to get better. So he's getting better at school and he's getting better with this recluse guy. And Jamal wants to extend the favor himself. He's like, I want to take you out. I want to take you, show you around town. You know, New York's changed a lot since you decided to go out. Uh, so they decide to go to a game. They decided to go to a basketball game in Madison Square Garden. And Forrester's like, you know, uh, or this recluse guy to Jamal is, you know, he's, he's freaking out. He's, he's worried about, you know, the life outside. And actually at the game, he has a full-on panic attack. Uh, or at, he doesn't even get into the game. They just, they're just they just uh, trying to shuffle along with the rather regular people trying to get to their uh, classes. Uh, not classes, sorry, to their seats. And he has a full-on panic attack. So they decide to go someplace a little more secluded. And... Jamal's brother, Terrell, bus a bus, yep. gets him into Yankee Stadium alone. They get to go down to the field. Oh. To, oh, that's it? That's it. I'm about halfway through. I think about yeah. halfway through. You'll get there. Uh, they get to go down to home plate, see Yankee Stadium from the player's view. And it is there that uh, the recluse tells Jamal that his brother went away to World War II and came back disfigured, pained, and he had this close relationship with him. And that since war changed his brother, it changed him too. Also, over the course of this part of the movie, uh, Jamal finds out that this recluse person is, in fact, William Forrester, the person that they're reading in school. So it doesn't necessarily change their relationship, but it definitely, like, it, it, help, it tells Jamal, like, hey, like, you've been writing these books the people outside have read your books. They know you. You know you could interact with these people. You could talk to these people. And uh, Forrester's having a tough time, kind of um, reckoning with the world outside. So um, it, we go on. Uh, uh, he's writing at. Uh, he's writing with Forrester, and Forrester has this rule that nothing they write together should ever leave the space. You know that wasn't going to happen because Jamal nope. definitely uh, takes one of the essays that he wrote because at, the, at first he couldn't write by himself. He would stare at the typewriter and uh, Forrester takes out an old essay that he wrote and says, here, write what I wrote until your words are able to come to you. So he takes that very essay that he wrote and submits it in a, as a for a school assignment. Yeah, and, I'll interject just, just slightly because sure. his, his, his teacher is just hating. His teacher is a hate hardcore and it's it, like it's real Salieri energy. If you're familiar with Amadeus. Yeah. He's like, you can't write this good. Cause you're yeah. a, 
as we like to say, you know, it's it's the hard R without the hard R because you're a basketball player. <laughs> in, in this movie, he says he says he's from the Bronx. Yeah, which and, is a coverall for nigga. <laughs> basketball. And he's like, you're black and you're poor. Impossible that you can rate this way. Yeah, right. you you're a basketball player. You're poor and you're from the Bronx and you're black. Yeah, no, wait, it's impossible. Let me, let me let me find it. Yeah, no, he was he was just like. We will not have it. <laughs> no. Nope. I said we will not have it. Oh. <laughs> <Could>, right. <laughs> That's right. Could, could not accept it. So the gist was that he was like, "All right, I don't believe you can do this. So you have to come to my office. Yeah, you have to day. come to my office to write the next assignment. Yeah, I want to see you write it. Yeah, or I won't accept it. And so. So Jamal. Jamal's like, fuck that. Yeah, well, he's like, I can't write with this sure. dusty old man like watching me. Well, I know. I <laughs> what writer can write under pressure? I can. Like, write, write. Yeah. Like, right. It comes to me when I'm ready to write. Like, some people procrastinate. Yeah. I, need you to, I need you to write in my office. Get out of here. No yeah, writer so can like, do that. Don't, like, don't be like, watch, watch me like a hawk. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he just in a moment of like, I needed to turn something in. Here's something that I wrote. Yes, and so it, he takes the essay and, and turns it into his own. But carry on, carry but but um, Crawford actually he's he's feeling something in his hating tendencies. He is hating his hating senses is uh is it's, it's firing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tingling, and he's like, no, no, there's something off about this. So that happens. There's also a couple scenes where Jamal's like playing on the basketball team. And he's found a rival on his own team that's giving him the blues. Yeah, proto Jesse Williams. Yeah, <laughs> young Jesse Williams. <laughs> um, and <laughs> they they're kind of having it out, and they had this scene where he has to shoot fifty three throws as punishment for you know fight with this guy on court. But they both uh, know that they're both so good, and they both score all fifty. Mm-hmm. And coach comes on and he says, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Which is life. awesome. That's incredible. I mean, like, that's typical <laughs> I mean that, is some, that is some pretty crazy stuff 50 in a row. That's pretty impressive. Um, so it all comes, it ends up all kind of culminating first with the, uh, the championship, the New York City championship. They get all the way to the championship and they play the game at Madison Square Garden. And it comes, it's like, what, 62-63 is the score that it comes yeah. down to. And it comes down to a foul shot. Well, and there's a there's a caveat because like I guess the principal oh, yes, yes, yes. of the school the prince of the, the principal of the school has found out about this uh, about Crawford's allegations and says we can make it all go away probably it, wink wink if you win this championship yeah. and bring us home a trophy so Jamal comes it literally comes down to it Jamal has to shoot a shoot two free throws on a foul shot and. He looks at everybody in the court. He looks at the principal. He looks at Crawford. He looks at Claire, his friend, and he looks at the he looks at the basket, and he misses. And you know that he could have made. He, it. Made, he missed on yeah. purpose. So, Out of pure spite and yeah. pettiness. So he misses the first one, and then he looks at everybody again. And he's like, "This is the choice I'm making." He actively makes a choice mm-hmm. to miss it. They don't go to overtime. They don't win the trophy, and. And Forrester's he, watching at home. I guess they. And Forrester's they watching the, the game state, at home. High school state championships on TV. <laughs> Just so happens, um, this movie also has a lot of like preposterous like setups, but we'll get into that later too. Um, so, at school, uh, Crawford again, ha- he makes everybody read their piece, 
in front of everybody. And Jamal said he wasn't going to read it in front of anybody. Mm -hmm. But guess who comes in to read it in front of everybody? Forrester. William Forrester comes in and wows the crowd, says, he comes in with the words. Boom. He illuminates the crowd with this wonderful speech. He reads a piece of his own. Wait, wait. Turns out that piece was Jamal. (laughs) (laughs) And the crowd goes wild. The entire class gets up, raises to their feet, and applauds. Applause Forrester and applause Jamal. Yeah. And they all go crazy. Crawford's and still hating, though. Crawford's still on that Solieri energy, <laughs> still hating. And uh, the principal decides to let this all pass. Yeah. So, walking home that day, Forrester says to Jamal, You know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to Scotland. I'm going to see my family and try to see the people that I've missed over these years. And he bikes off into the sunset like a magical pixie like a pixie (laughs) magical pixie white person it's so strange it's such a strange that he literally had bikes off down like fifth avenue could got hit by like two cats i was like i was like that's how you know it's a it's a film set because if that was real new york he would have got swiped up already yeah. Oh, it was yeah. real New York. It might not have been real Sean Connery, though. Oh, no, that That's was a stunt writer for sure. They ain't gonna last Sean Connery. Definitely he a stunt writer. He was at that time just like talking. 100%. I mean, he wasn't even doing movies like that at this yeah. time. Are you gonna let him get hit by Madison Avenue traffic? <laughs> That's not happening. So uh, we cut to a year later. And who else but Matt Damon in, by all the way, since we're off to five minutes now, this is the second instance that I've seen in my life of a movie happening and then in the final sequence matt damon shows up to explain everything i and having not seen goodwill hunting i was like is this a crossover like is that it's a reference I character from goodwill it's, hunting? It's a little, i think it was a, a little um call back to goodwill hunting because i was just like gus van yeah. did um direct goodwill hunting and i think um that, it's only two years they're only three yeah years and i think matt damon could yeah. have been an as an ep on it i have to check but i think he could have also been an ep yeah. on the film as well Okay. okay, well, so Matt Damon comes in. He's this uh, lawyer, Sanderson, who explains to uh, Jamal that Forrester has died. He had he was diagnosed with cancer before they ever met. Um, so Forrester, turns out, has left his apartment with all those books and all those papers and the typewriters to Jamal, hopefully rekindling his, loving, his desire to write. Uh, and Jamal was also given... The manuscript to Forrester's, he only wrote one novel, yeah, The Avalon Landing, and uh, he gave him the manuscript to his second novel, hopefully that Jamal would write a foreword to it, and the movie ends with Jamal just playing basketball with his friends. Yeah. So it's up to you to see Oof. whether or not he pursued writing or even kept the apartment, Oof. you know. His mom, is, like his a, mom was like, "We're a, keeping this apartment." She walked in there and she was like, "Yo, like, I'm gonna put, the, I'm gonna put the table right there. We are gonna paint these walls." Busta yeah. was like, "I'm gonna get the, I'm gonna get this room right there. I'm gonna have my biddies over in the other room over there." You yeah, know? there's no question about it. Like, I mean, yeah. whether yeah. or not Jamal lived in that apartment <laughs> is up to debate. But his mom was definitely moving in there. They live like, there now. <laughs> so, and Busta probably still lives there. Yeah. <laughs> And that's Finding Forrester, pretty much. That's Finding Forrester. So, so, I mean, again, we do this all the time, but without any more pretense. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about this movie. Like, I would say this movie, when, after I finished watching it, because I had, I had a couple of thoughts when I was seeing it. Mm. I heard the music, and I was like, man, they really, like, got to 
great Clarence Blanchard like wannabe. The Terrence Blanchard wanted me to come on and do the movie, and then I looked up, and it was Terrence Blanchard. <laughs> Who did the I music. actually did the exact same thing with some of the songs because I was like, what's this fake Miles in a Silent Way? <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, it's Miles in a Silent Way. <laughs> but it felt very much so like Terrence Blanchard gave you like, all right, this is what I didn't put on He Got Game. Yeah. I, so, <laughs> <laughs> I got some leftovers, <laughs> you know, so here I had this. But when I finished the movie, I was like, this feels like an Ike Lee film, right? Yeah, I, like you couldn't get Spike Lee. So you got, you got Ike, the off-brand, you know, because so much, like, so many moments in the film even just felt like the typewriter sequence where he was just oh like, my God. we're going to type. And you know, and then the jazz music starts up and they just start, like, you know, hitting the keys to rhythm. I was like... So many, so many moments in this movie feel like he's aping Spike Lee, like, so yeah. directly. Yeah, he was yes. like, it yes. has a black protagonist. It has, like, black people playing basketball. It's New York. It's, New York, it's the Bronx. We got to get some kind of black american black new york sensibility up in here which is again the jazz mm-hmm. music the um a hundred percent the cinematography in a way kind of like as you say you're t- you're saying aping spike lee but i don't think necessary is necessary is aping spike lee i think it's a lot of that's well, the makers at that time because spike cinematography will be changing film style yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> exactly but I, color I think sequ- it was, I think uh, strict color sequence i think it was in the mode of a lot of like black filmmakers like john singleton you know Antoine mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um you know there are films like a lot of these, uh, these kind of films were very popular like, this is a very specific era yeah. in hollywood yeah. in the late 90s for sure so like you have like films like this this, this is definitely yeah no, so you have films like this and then you have films like coach carter you know, like mm-hmm. all those films, those types of films were coming out around this same time. So like, they had a very specific um, look about them and mm-hmm. um, coloring, costuming, and uh, like they're very specific looks. So then you look, you can yeah. look at these films, you say, yeah. I can pinpoint exactly when this film was made. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say there's, there's definitely like this is the to me this felt like the happy medium between like a clockers. Mm. And a and a white man can't jump side of spectrum, and then yeah. you have the Coach Carters and the Remember the Titans, the more clean, pristine studio film, and this one sits right in the center, mm. I think, where I feel like Van Zant is trying to. A director wouldn't say he's aping because that's definitely like that's that's biting straight up, but he is trying to. I feel like he's trying to bite like black filmmakers yeah. who since they don't have access to so many things, they don't have access to so many resources cinematically, that they're, you know, Spike turned that into a style. John Singleton turned that into a style, you know? Yeah. And I feel like Van Sant is trying to borrow from that style a little bit while still staying true to himself and yeah. also very much so making a studio yeah. picture. Well, that's, that's what's jarring about it because there are mm-hmm. times where it's just like, this is Van Sant doing what he does. Right. There are times where it's like, this feels like Van Sant like watched, uh, <laughs> not necessarily like do the right thing, but like watched, you know, like Spike and, and Singleton and like some of these other filmmakers yeah. and said, okay, what would they do in this situation? Like, I remember there was one where they're on the subway and like the, the camera is like in front of the subway, kind of like zigzagging. Yeah. It's on, the, it's on the front window. Yeah. And I was so like, this looks like a, the- like a spike shot. You know, yeah. and then there's and then like the, the typewriter scene and then there's scenes the that, that just feel like like a prestige movie. Right. Like there's a scene not at the very end, but like previously where uh, for whatever reason, 
Forrester gets his bike out and just starts riding down the street. And then, like, yeah, this, like, music that's not Terrence Blanchard starts playing. Yeah. <laughs> He's just riding along New York streets at night. And I was just like, this feels like a completely different film, you know? They end the movie with that, uh, with Jamal playing basketball with that uh, Hawaiian over the yeah, rainbow. Which yeah, I wanted to bark. Listen, I love that song. <laughs> that is honestly one of my favorite songs. That, that is the cover of... Um, Summer of the Rainbow by Israel Kamakwe Ole. Mm-hmm. I love that cover. I love mm-hmm. that song, but it does not fit the film. It's a beautiful song. It does not fit the film. But it's not here. Not, no. not here and not over that. No, no. Well, Carolyn, what did you... Because you you were saying that you hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I had you not. Know. So as I said, this film came out in 2000 and I was probably the... And I may have probably the last I seen so it was probably 2001, 2002... So I have not okay. seen so around it. when it came out. Yeah, so I have not seen it in that long. And like legit, I honestly forgot much of the film. Not forgot as in like totally forgot, but like there are certain scenes that I remembered. Like I remember the scenes that stay very vividly with me is like when he's on the basketball mm-hmm. court and we get this the up shot, the shot going up and seeing uh Forrester watching him. And you know, you mm-hmm. get that scope of yeah. the view where he's like basically he is the white man in the tower watching the plebeian <laughs> basketball in the ghetto. And then another scene that's the, that the scene, and then the other scene that me was is the one near the end where uh, Forrester comes into the school and he's reading in the in the library. Yeah. And then the other one that for years, this is one that has stuck with me because as a writer, it has really stuck with me is where Jamal tells Forrester about you can start a sentence with but you can start a sentence with a conjunction. I remember that scene very vividly because legit, when I write, whenever I'm writing an article and I do do that, I start sentences with but. And however, I always think of that scene. So because I always yeah. say, yes, you can, because I'd be thinking, would my editor tell me the same thing? Like I can't start a sentence. And I've mm. never had an editor ever tell me that, that I can't mm. ever start a sentence with a conjunction. Because I'm like, yes. It's one of the better scenes. Exactly. In the because when I was watching yeah. the film, I remember thinking, like, no, Forrester, you are wrong. You can start a sentence with and but and however. Like, you know, like, you're wrong, sir. And then Jamal was like, nah, you're wrong. I was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those are the scenes that always stick with me. And I was legit surprised. I was like, Buster, Buster, is that you? Because, again, this, this was also a very area in time where a lot of hip-hop, hip-hop artists were transitioning into acting. And the one, the only, there's a handful of them that have made very successful transitions. You had Ice Cube. Sure. You had... Um, yeah. Ice tea. I see. I see. My guy that was in something the ha- the something the the Lord made. I remember that movie, but he he uh, he still he hasn't acted in a really long time. I think he moved to Africa. Oh my, I'm gonna look it up. But he's one of the very few that have made yeah, such. Yeah. But this, so when I saw Busterians, it actually made me think of Fast and Furious. I love the franchise as absurd as it oh, is. Almost stuff. But you oh, know when you have. had yeah, the stuff. first when you like, the first few films we had a lot of hip, we had a hip hop artists making all the cameos in those in those films. So when I saw Buster, yeah. I was like, yeah, this makes sense. It, uh, it's only incongruous, but it shows that he was actually a pretty good actor. Like he felt natural. He, he speaking of Busta, he went so hard in his scene with Sean Connery. He, did. he was like, I'm, I'm up against Sean Connery. He I'm was like, I'm on set cut. with. Right. Yeah. I'm in. Jay, I'm in a scene with James Bond. I am not fucking. And this I'm up. not mad at him for all. He was. Like, I'm going to make every second on on screen. Call. And he did a pretty good Same. job. Like he felt natural. Like he didn't feel forced because you know you can tell where mm-hmm. so you can tell when an actor. Especially if they're new and if they're not familiar with acting. acting. You can tell when they're like counting the, you know, we would say someone's dancing, you can see them counting the beats in their heads. When it comes to acting, Mm -hmm. you can see people like reciting the notes, the the lines in their head before they deliver them. He doesn't do that. He feels very natural. So like, 
and I'm, I'm glad that I watched the film for that because it does it did remind me. Yeah, Busta, pretty good actor. Like you know, yeah, he can hold his own. Well, Natural. Also- natural but I it's also know. it's a weird movie right because it's got it's got busted it's got Lil Zane <laughs> for some reason Stop. I didn't remember that that was Lil Zane until you just mentioned that I was just like wait that wasn't uh, well because I was looking at him I was like that guy looks like Lil Zane but that can't be him and then I was like oh <laughs> I looked it up oh. later I think he was in a couple it other is. films with maybe Bow Wow I'm feeling yeah mm-hmm. yeah right yeah no I mean he's he's been in movies but it was just kind of a weird that like the the last person I thought I would see yeah, why would you <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like the film is kind of weird in that sense, and it is like as we we're talking about, it has very white savior trope in it, where he's yeah. he like saves um, not only Jamal and that like, he gives him the validation and recognition of an actor, but he literally like legit they have it like he saves his family from uh, from living in the ghetto, raises them up out of poverty mm-hmm. to to come and bring them from the ghetto into his high castle. And, you know, watch every single mm-hmm. As I'm watching this, I'm like, did he leave enough money for these people to pay property taxes? Because they, like, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I was thinking. I guess they got to sell those books, baby. You know, yeah, like, they sell that manuscript. No, I'm like, it's good or well to leave, the, leave them the house. Yeah, because they don't got to pay. But I'm like, did you leave the money to pay for the property taxes? Yeah, I'm like, is he going to leave him as his estate? Like, is he getting a portion exactly. of the Exactly, into perpetuity. Have you made them yeah. heirs and benefactors of your estate, sir? Like, that's where the that's where the real benefit comes in. Don't, don't be leaving yeah. me your house yeah. if I got to handle everything on my own. Like, keep it. I guess they're just <laughs> expecting that manuscript to be, like, worth... A lot of money. Millions and millions of dollars. Or even just, like, he's probably got, like, first editions of Which things. Would, yeah, first editions are rare... If they know how to, yeah, if they know how to do that, if yeah. they know how to finesse that, then they'll be... Go well, auction them off in France or, um, yeah. or um, was it, not, they're Ch- Chatterley's or whatever, the famous auction houses. S- Sotheby's, Sotheby's yeah. right. Yeah. Go and have Sotheby's auction it. Then you did rake in the dough for sure. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, Cameron, what, because was this the first time you'd seen this movie? Yes. Okay. This, this is the, definitely the first time I've seen this movie. And I remember the trailer. I remember <laughs> everything about it coming out. And I remember it being a movie I like was cool with ignoring. <laughs> Cameron, do you, did you remember this? You're the man now, Lord. <laughs> Can I tell you? No. <laughs> that scene was wrong. I put in my notes. In my I'm... notes, I put no, sir. Stop it. <laughs> Don't ever do that again. I was watching this movie last night. I was like sitting there, and it was you know it's fine. It's moving along. It's pretty slow burn of a movie, honestly. And then it kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> He's literally just like, go ahead and write. You're the man now, though. And it's also like, wrong in his accent. Whoa, whoa. Delivery is so wrong. Who told you to, who told you that was okay? Rob didn't beat you up Gus after Van that Gus Van Sant and Mike Rich were just like, you got it. You're the man Gus, <laughs> Gus was like, I don't know, try it on this one. Try it. You got the juice now. Try, try that. And say you got the juice and it's so now. funny because like he's saying that because he's typing and he's like typing really and he's like press really hard on the key yeah, like, yeah, ty- yeah i'm like you're saying this over typing no sir mm-hmm. you're on the man now dog <laughs> <laughs> and then he stopped acting yeah <laughs> i'm not, actually let's let's find out because i think it's i don't know if it's this one but is it? Is this his last movie? I don't think Ooh. so. I think he made like another movie. No, it's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, that's Sean Connery? It. Yeah, because he, he stopped his... acting after just a few years later, yeah. Yeah, so League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that 
piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can see why. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's this is what's so interesting about this movie. I think when you when you look at Sean Connery's character, because I want to look at Sean Connery's character and then I want to look at Rob Brown's character, because I right, think they're right. both very interesting dynamics going on here. 100%. Sean Connery's character is the white magical Negro. Like, it's very weird yes. how it all plays out because he is just what he's just watching them and i guess the neighborhood from his window through binoculars in a very creepy way kids have made up urban legends about him they call him window you know they're just <laughs> they call like, him window that's happening. very black though that's very black yeah just and to the- sit, call you the thing that we associate you with like okay microphone <laughs> i see you microphone yeah i see you shoes uh, I see you shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then, because there's a whole scene where one of the kids is like telling this, I think it is Lil Zane. He's telling this long winded story about how he was, he was talking to this girl who uh, lived in the building and then she heard some tapping and the tapping got closer and then like it was on her door and then the, the phone cut off and you never saw her again. And they're like, she lives across the street, you know? Like, <laughs> but they're like, you know, she's a crackhead. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, man, no, that's no. Yeah, but so he's been, you know, kind of associated with this neighborhood, become legend. The reasons for him and Jamal's relationship are unclear because, you know, like he reads his writing, he marks his writing, he throws his backpack out the window when he's walking away. And Jamal is like, I need to meet this man. You know, I need to. So much of this movie is just preposterous. Yeah, I have to be around him. Like he gives him the, you know, fuck off, never come back. You know, write an essay about that, and then he does, and And he's like, and he's like, oh, this is actually pretty good. (laughs) You know, but but Sean Connery, (laughs) I'm gonna be doing that. Sean Connery, like he's he's so he's not giving you the Marlon Brando, right? Like he is acting in right. this movie. He's not. He wasn't just like mm-hmm, you know a check is a check. It's a performance. It's a performance. Yeah. So he's he's giving you Sean Connery. You know, it's it's low level Sean Connery. Like he's not pulling out yeah. all the stops, but like he's giving you the Sean Connery experience. But his character very much so, you know, has an arc in terms of he's reclusive and then he's not reclusive, and that's basically it. it. Like Jamal, yeah, it feels him like up. super one note. Like he's reclusive and a drunk, but he's not even really a drunk. He's just yeah. like a charismatic drinker. He's just real sad. Yeah, yeah, um, he's just real sad. <laughs> but real, like, real sad emo boy. Yeah, but he there is there is a lot of magical Negro aspects to his character because he's just he's he exists to prop Jamal's writing up and give it validation. Yeah. And then for the final sequence where he comes in and then they reveal that he was reading Jamal's writing all along. So like, you know, r- literal, literal savior, right? Literally rescues Jamal's, <laughs> you know, like writing career and like school career. Um, but, th- and then just rides off to never to literally be seen again. Rides off, off on a bicycle to <laughs> back to Scotland. <laughs> My dude, the, the bicycle sprouted wings and he flew back to Scotland like Mary Poppins. Can I, can can I do something? Clouds. The scene in the where, where Forrester comes and he read, reads Jamal's story. So that scene yeah. literally almost, that's where you say that scene is so over the top dramatic even though it doesn't seem like initially. When you really yeah. think about yeah. it, yeah. if Crawford hadn't stopped Forrester from walking out the door, Forrester didn't even, it looked as if Forrester didn't even intend to say that the writing was Jamal, Jamal's. No, no he no. was, he was heading right. through the door, out going, making his dramatic exit to applause, to rousing applause. 
from yeah. the students and the faculty. And it's only because Crawford was like, well, however, sir, this yeah. doesn't do a well, what, what, like lo lovely of you to stop in, lovely of you to, to share your words of wisdom with us, but this still doesn't absolve it. And he was right, because he's like, this still doesn't resolve the issue that we're discussing here at the moment. Yeah. And like, this is the only time I agreed with Crawford. Crawford was like, yeah, well, you came in for what? This doesn't help. The, this what does yeah. the situation. And if Crawford hadn't done that, Forrester would have kept on going and he would not have actually revealed, revealed. that it was Jamal who yeah. wrote the who wrote the story. Very I, true. I, I, yeah. Sir, you ain't no goddamn good. You, you didn't <laughs> say <laughs> you didn't say nothing to help Jamal. You just went there to show your face and to read your stuff and to say, that's me on that painting up there. Like, sir, come on now. Yeah. Well, and him and him and Crawford had a, a sort of adversarial relationship. Exactly. He only went there to be petty because he, he wanted to embarrass Crawford. Yeah, and he, he wanted but to that's also so stun on him. That's so crazy that like Jamal's random teacher at this school would be like <laughs> Forrester's nemesis. kind of not nemesis. Uh, you know, moral nemesis, but yeah. like kind of his nemesis. nemesis and, because like, remember Forrester had feelings about nemesis that. Remember like, Forrester oh, well, said that he was the one who stopped Crawford's book from even being published yeah, because he, he told shit. the people yeah, that he, killed his book, he was like yeah. I'm going to publish a book so the publishers were like which is stupid I don't know why any publisher would stop publishing a book because another person is going to write a book when it would take at least another year for that book to be published that's anyway. so strange that's so strange right? like it's that and then it's like there's a lot I mean there's just a lot of stuff in this movie that exists specifically for either like Forrester to to appear benevolent, right? Or you know, kind of like, oh, like I'm I'm doing this out of the kindness of my heart. But even like, so like, even like the initial sequence where they like have their first conversation, mm -hmm. and you know, he's reading his work, and he was like, yeah, this is great. Like, oh, you're a writer, and you're black, and like Jamal's like, what does that mean? And you yeah, just like that conversation is wild. And he's just like, I just wanted to see what you would do. You know, and then he like raises a knife to him or something. And then Jamal's like, I gotta because because then Jamal like leaves and he's like, you're crazy. I'm never coming back. And then the next day he comes back, he comes and, back. and Forrest yeah. is like, I knew you'd come back. You know what I mean? Because like, what, did, did you did you really want to have a conversation with me or did you just want me to like read your writing or was you know, that like, like his backwards Yoda way of like getting him to continue being his student? Yeah. I think it was like reverse psychology. I, like, like by calling you black and then raising a knife to your neck. I think, and we're going to talk about this because Mike Rich is a, a show favorite because one of his yeah. other credits is radio. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Uh, if you're not familiar with his mm -hmm. name, but I think <laughs> the one with Cuba Gooding Jr. This, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm I'm probably putting something into this. I think what he was trying to do was to see if that would push. Because I mean, a lot of what he's saying is like, I wanted to see how far I could push you. You like, know, I'm gonna I mean? trigger you. Because I because I think his his thinking or reasoning is like this is what it's gonna be like if you want to pursue writing is that people right. are gonna you know oh and you're black and that's amazing you know so like people will provoke you yeah so like if I provoke you and you like flip out then it's not worth my time to mentor you but if I'm able to say racist things to you and then you <laughs> don't push back on it then I think I'll make this worth my time I don't really know it's a weird if scene let, if you let me call you. <laughs> If you let me call you the N-word and you don't whoop my ass, can we write together, please? No. I would also say 
I would also say that because of Sean Connery's accent, every time he said Jamal, it sounded like J-Mall. And all I could think about was Southside. <laughs> so the, the, thing about, the thing about this film that has always bugged me, like watching it kind of re-bugged re, re me again, is like, it re-bugged re me because Jamal left his bag there and he left the book, the notebook that he had with this, the, um, basically the outline of the story that he was developing. And this man, Foster, is going to take it upon his time to go through the bag, which I would have done. I'm like, some can leave their bag in my, some broke yeah. into my apartment, leave their bag. I'm going to go through it too. So, in about that, it's about the fact he saw the manuscript, the book, and redlined, made all of these, right, these yeah. comments and these notes and stuff in his book, and then threw it out. Now, first of all, as a writer, how, how dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> right? How dare you make you, you take your red pen and make all of these these corrections and these notes on this guy's manuscript? Talk, right? That you don't do that. You don't correct. You're he's not his editor. He's a great American writer, Carolyn. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. He's not an editor. You're <laughs> not the his greatest teacher. American Why writers. are you correcting and making all these notes on it? That is as a writer, like that's just straight up disrespectful. Right. So that so that's what's never that rebugged me because I'm like, how dare you? And then throw it out the window, Adam. Yeah, and then uh, throw it out the window. <laughs> like. The disrespect, but it's yeah. So it's interesting because Forrester is like I don't. He is he's lit. I mean, it's literally a white saver movie. Like there's no oh, other yeah. way to so to think about it because he again saves him from like you were saying, Carolyn. Like I guess a life of poverty, raise him out of the you know head. obscurity, and then like also he seems like a good kid saves <laughs> his uh academic career because he you know keeps him at this prestigious school and all this stuff. But from Jamal's perspective. What a wild character, right? Because yeah. Jamal, like, when you think about it, so far, before we go any further, I do want to give um, Rob yeah. Brown. Because yeah. he's, he's, this is his first mm -hmm. movie ever, mm -hmm. and he's yeah. acting against Sean Connery, and he's holding his own. And he's uh, doing a damn thing. Yeah, you know, he's very, he's got a very natural, you know, feel to him, and is able to express multiple emotions believably right you know what i mean like in a scene it's not just like and this is the scene where i'm angry then this is the scene where i'm sad you know like yeah, he's going through yeah. multiple emotions within a scene along with sean connery so he does a really good job but and he can ball like well, he can yeah, really he can ball. Play. so let's talk about that for a second okay I don't think Gus Van Sant has ever watched basketball in his life. I think Gus yes. Van Sant, I think somebody explained the game to him and he was like, I got it. <laughs> this is this working. Is that, or maybe he's seen because, basketball games, but he doesn't really understand how basketball works or is played. Because the, uh, the I think first. He understood, he under, somebody explained to him what a foul shot is and like how that all works. Well, because, well, first of all, the coach of the team says when they shoot the free throws, he says, we're going to shoot fouls. And I was like, what are you talking like, about? Do you mean right free there. throws? That's not how fouls work. Right fouls there. only occur within the game. Like, you don't just stand your yeah. shot. That's not what it is, sir. I was like, what's happening? But it's then... like the Inglorious Bastards, like the three, the German three. It's like, I seen you. I seen yeah. you. <laughs> but <laughs> then... <laughs> but then, like, the sequence where him and, him and fake Jesse Williams are playing, because it's like... <laughs> It, like that kid is like the only other black kid at the school, I think, <laughs> and is like, what is with these light skinned kids being the only other black oh. people? <laughs> and immediately adversarial, That's, right? Immediately yeah. has staked out his territory, and is like, no, I am the no. one. I run I this. play basketball. <laughs> I go to this. Like you can't come in here and take my spot. 
So, I'm the smart black kid around here. Yeah, so they immediately are like at each other, right? But this is and this is another Spike Lee esque sequence where it's like it feels like they're the only two kids on the court. That that was so weird. I'm but like, it's nobody passes. They do like what two back and forth, basically, yeah, and they don't pass the ball at all. No, it's specifically between them two. Yeah, it's like the Riley Freeman school of basketball where they're just like <laughs> just like dribbling and like going at each other and like eventually, you know, like they kind of initially, you know, he's he's he steals the ball from Jamal and like, you know, yeah. embarrasses him, but then they kind of, you know, go back and forth and they I guess like I don't think they earn each other's respect, but they're both like, okay, we're both good at basketball. And the movie ends with when he finds out it's his speech. He's still hating. Well, and can we can we make a sidebar too, right? Sure. So the whole the whole state basketball sequence, mm. it's that other kid's fault that they lose. They're up five with maybe Whoa. like a couple seconds. I to caught go. that shit too. They threw away a lead. They threw away a lead with like what thirty seconds on the yeah, clock. Yeah, well, because the kid he can't get the ball past half court. He gets the ball stolen from him once, leading to an open layup. So that they were up five, I think, and that got it down. And then like he turns it over. Like, he, he just throws it away or something. So, like, why are kids... I, I could... Yeah, sure, Jamal missed two free throws, right? But, like, why aren't you mad at that kid, too? Because he, like, fucked it up for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know? All you had to do was just, like, wind the clock down. And instead, he decides that he's going to do... I don't know what he was trying to do, but, like, he had two turnovers in the last yeah. 20 seconds of the game. Like, he lost the game. Jamal... It doesn't... It's... <laughs> It's so many, like, it's so many, and this is more a critique of the movie than the white saviorism of it, but, like, there's so many moments in this movie that are so, like, plot-specific that are, that you've set up other things to make me believe other things. Yeah. That when this, when the plot device happens, it shouldn't have happened because you told me other things would happen, right? Yeah. Like, the, the, the 50 shot scene is so that we know when he shoots the free throw, right. he's throwing them away. That's the point. Right. But if you set up Homeboy to be... You know, Jesse. You set up Jesse Williams to be like <laughs> crossing up people on the the big man on campus, and he fucks up hard in the last minute of the game, in the last thirty yeah. seconds of the game. Like, fam, this specifically for the plot. Yeah, yeah. You know it is right. It makes this movie weaker. It makes the movie weaker. Well, but so, and then I'll I'll, I'll extend that further because this is the thing that I found very interesting about Jamal's character, right? Mm. And this is the thing I think a lot of these movies don't understand when they try to do this stuff so jamal as a character we're supposed to take in as an audience is that he is maybe a genius right like he's very smart they go out of their way to say oh you know like his his scores in class you know are kind of like c's sometimes b's he's -hmm. getting along but then he takes his aptitude test he's off the charts it's incredible he's like you know one of the smartest kids i've ever seen like the the principal at the school when he comes to recruit him is like you're saying he's basically salivating he's like, <laughs> you know, like he's like this you, is you right good and you can play basketball god dang yeah black oh my god I so you know they're like we, play we, the powerball tonight we need this kid like oh my god incredible amazing right yeah you know there's a very awkward scene where he's walking over to this guy getting out of a bmw I don't know why he's even talking to him, but then then the guy's like ignoring him, and Jamal's like, "Oh, why are you why are you moving away? You think I'm gonna steal your car because you're locking up your car?" 
And it's like, well, he's locking up his car because that's what you do when you get out of your car. But also, like, it was, I guess, presented in a way where he's, but it's all a setup, like you're saying. So like those those turnovers are a setup for him to blow the free throws. This conversation right. is a setup for you to say, oh, he knows so much about BMW and he's like schooling this guy and he's so he's smart. obviously learned. Yeah, but, and there's, you know, the sequence where Crawford, and him get into a back and forth and Crawford's trying to like stump him with authors and he's just like it's giving like, the names boom. back to him, you know, before. But all of that yeah. is set up with the presumption that he couldn't be and he couldn't be right. because he's black and from the Bronx. Right? Exactly. And so as an audience member, it's only impressive if you're coming at it from the standpoint of, wow, people like him normally don't know anything. So the fact that he knows so many <laughs> things is amazing. Exactly. <laughs> as opposed to just like, yeah, why wouldn't he know? I mean, you know, I mean, like he can go to the library. I know. Can, For, they have they have the proto internet, you know, like he, he literally can, does. You know, like there's no reason why he couldn't. Because the thing is, these, but, these types of films aren't made for black people like us who know people who read mm-hmm. these kind of stories. They're made for white people who believe yep, these yeah. things. To to be to be uh, debunked to have black people be debunked for yeah. Them. These yes. films are for like white so, people like Crawford. For them to be, oh my god! Right. Like there are what black people who know Shakespeare, who know Edgar, Edgar Allen, George Poe, Bernard Shaw, Shaw, yeah. and Kipling, and all these people. They're like, oh my god, black people know them too. I know all the writers that they are listed. From Baltimore, and I read Pygmalion. Exactly, what? all the writers that are listed <laughs> are who? What white male writers? Not even white women. Mm-hmm. No choice. All of them are. All of them are, are white men. So it's all about the whole white class. You know, like. The films and the books are already determined to be classics. Yeah, exactly. It's like the films and the books are determined to be classics of humanity are white are by white men. Like, screw that. Mm -hmm. Go on, go and have Jamal quote me some black people. Go and have Jamal quote some like Asian and Southeast Asian and African um art authors. Go on, that's that's what they tell me. Like, because growing up in secondary school, some Maya Angelou, some Amy. Exactly. Go, you know, go in in the Korean, like we we were taught Shakespeare. In primary school so like that kind of stuff has never even been impressive to me but you have like university <laughs> students like talking about reading shakespeare i'm like i read shakespeare at 10 years old and i was dyslexic like in the caribbean dunk on them no in dunk primary on them. school yeah. we read shakespeare in for in in primary school and in first form in secondary school so that's 11 years old uh, in english literature that's who we were reading so these kind of sh- this is now when i watch these films I'm like, this is not impressive to me. I read Call of the Well at 11 years old. I read Moby Dick <laughs> at 11 years old. This is not a, this. I did too, actually. These are <laughs> things that people write dissertations and thesis on in, in university. And I'm like, white people so um so so pedantic. I'm like, white people are so passe. I read these. You, I'm supposed to be impressed about university students quoting Shakespeare. Mm. Why? <laughs> Gonna, I, I I like that white people are passive. Like, it's never yeah, like gonna, when I watch this kind of films, I'm like, I've never been impressed. I read Frankenstein in primary school. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and just drop bombs under uh, that whole yeah, <laughs> drop the flex bombs, that, that drop whole, the flex that bombs whole part, that whole shit yeah. because that that is exactly what I wanted to talk about because this movie presupposes right, like you're saying, Carolyn, that one. What is ideal and what Jamal should be striving for is the white literary canon, right? Like what he should Mm be trying to reach and why it's so impressive is that he writes like these white Mm -hmm. people, 
right? You know what I mean? That's what they really mean is that like right. it's incredible that you can write because he's 16 and, you know, people are like, wow, I can't believe that you are this smart and you're, you're you're doing all this stuff. But even like him being a basketball player and a scholar, it's like, did you not see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? like live his life like he's you know literally I mean? a film critic right now yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like it's it, it's it's very much possible for you to also be smart and athletic or like or just two things at one time you know what i mean not that's, just one that's thing that's the di- disgusting thing is that like the duality is so like it could never happen yeah well it crawford's like happen. i'm not i'm uncoordinated and a bad writer like how are you good at two <laughs> things and i'm not even good at one thing this is i can't take it um, but I think that's the point. So, like, at no point is anybody, right, quoting James Baldwin, quoting Ralph Ellison, quoting Zora mm. Neale Hurston, quoting, mm. like, you know, June Jordan, like, anybody that you could kind of have gone back through had Jamal just reading on the train or, like, anything like that. None of that is involved, right? None of that yeah, is Yeah, the movie opens to... with, like, shots of books by, like, Kierkegaard and... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what... What Forrester is is pushing him towards is writing like him. Forrester likes him because he writes, I guess, like he did when he was his age, you know, or yeah. around that age. So that's that's engaging to them. And I think, you know, like even even the, this trope is one that just I I don't like him going from the Bronx to this prep school in Manhattan also means that he never sees his friends again. And it's like. All right, if this was like a boarding school, sure, I could understand. You're at the school all the time, right? Mm. You're going from the Bronx to Manhattan. Your friends live in the Bronx. Like his one friend comes to see him play after a game and they're talking. But it seems like that's the first time they'd seen each other in a long time. But it's like, what's prohibiting you on the weekends? Unless the, I mean, I guess we're supposed to assume that he just spends all day with Forrester and doesn't see anybody else. But even then, wouldn't his mom be like, "Where are you all day? Where are you?" Yes, yeah. we Because a black person would have known, like you would have had his black mom asking, like, "Where you was all day? Who, you who know, are your friends? Who do who you love friends that you're hanging around with? Where are you going? What are you doing?" Or your friends met him. She you, probably would have met him. By yeah. that point. your friends, your friends have been coming by asking about you, and I don't know where you are. You know what I mean? So like. The the idea that for him to get to where he wants to get to means that he has to abandon black people and all the people that he knows in his life, because that's the only way that he's going to reach there. He goes to this prep school. There's no black people there. You know what I mean? And like, but it's but it's seen as a good thing. Right. It's seen as progression for him to get away from this is upward mobility. For him. Yeah. All of that. So like every everything in this movie is trending towards whiteness. The gaze is very white. away from black. People. The, yeah. The, the aspirations yeah. are very white. Right. Like, and it's just I like the, it's it's set up again. If you're a white person, you're like, wow, Jamal really made something of his life, you know. But like if you're watching as a black person, you're like, well, why does that mean he can't be around black people? Like, what does that mean that he has to be taking himself out of, you know, spaces and places where the or even that black people also don't like literature or like anything yeah. like that? So like or don't. Or like like uh, in this situation, his friends don't value him for his writing. If they yeah. value him for basketball, yeah. And that's kind of what what the I don't know if it's a guidance counselor or whoever calls his mom into the um Isn't it his to teacher? meet, but it, yeah, his yeah, his teacher because it's like you know Jamal, Jamal like you know he he pretends he's not smart, 
and like basketball is like how he fits in so, you know and so it's so so i no continue i want to i want to I, I was I'm, i have something to say about that but i want you to finish first sorry about that Oh, no. But yeah, I mean, it, that's playing on a trope again, that black people don't value intelligence, right? Like black mm-hmm. people, if you're smart, and you're black, you're white. And like, you you can't mm. be in the hood and like, you know, play ball with your, your friends and all that stuff, because they're gonna like clown you for learning or intelligence. And it's like, black people will joke on you for really anything it doesn't take a lot you know yeah. you don't have to be you, know what you I mean? can play basketball and still get clowned it don't yeah matter. you know <laughs> nobody's above right and so like but i don't think black people would be like oh you're the only reason they would do that is if you are doing it in the way that the movie sets it up is to get away from black mm-hmm. people right like right. if you were smart but you were just hanging out and like doing whatever like black people love james baldwin like black people love tony morrison like tony morrison right. could come through and nobody would be like but you're too you you're you're a published author like you can't my angel is in <laughs> any black person's house tony morrison is in any black I person's house it's not a, right it's not a class thing it's not like poor or rich it's a it's an intelligence thing it's a it's not even an intelligence thing. It's just a respect of our culture. Yes. So, I mean, the idea that he, he would hide his intelligence from everybody yeah. because, you know, he really wants to just be seen as a basketball player and, like, doesn't want to pursue writing in any real tangible way because that would expose him as intellectual. You know, that whole premise, too, really threw me off. But, uh, Carolyn, what did you, what did you want yeah, to say? Yeah, so about that. So there's two things about that. Um, one, and they're, and they're, I don't even know if they're really intended it to be, but they are actually connected. And one is the other Black student who's at the uh, the prep school. Um, as we they said, he's, he's light-skinned, he's mixed, yeah. he's biracial. Yeah. And the thing about mm-hmm. that is, so like, they did say Emma is, like, again, the only person, the only Black person who is, who becomes his antagonist in that school is not only black, but he's also light skinned. He's biracial. So you have the whole mm-hmm. colorism aspect of it where you have this like person, this light skinned boy seeing the dark skinned basketballer coming in and immediately seeing Jamat as wanting to usurp his position as in, as though like right. black people, he's like, there's only enough space for like, and like, which is funny, fun, funny enough, like last night after I watched Forrester for Saturday Night Sci-Fi, we watched um, Highlander 2, which Sean Connery is also in. And you know, for <laughs> Highlander, there's a line of like, there can be only one. So it's like the same idea in Finding Parts for this with, between these students. Like the guy is like, there can only be one of us. One of us can only be good. Yeah. One of us can only be accepted. Like they're not going to accept two yeah. black students. If this was a cool movie. You know, like if. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Sean Connery probably delivered that line somewhere and the director was like, okay, that's two on the nose, Sean. We can't add that. But I'm probably. <laughs> so he said, like, you're the man, dog. You're the man, now, dog. He probably said there can be only one. So. There can only be there one now. Be one <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's that. So there's the whole color, the colorism mm-hmm. and the colorist aspect of that. Of like black people, if if for two black people to exist within this space, want they have to be exceptional. Uh, and yeah. one thing, and this guy is like, I'm not an exceptional student, but I'm an exceptional basketballer. So I can't have you coming in and being both an exceptional student and an exceptional basketballer. And then in this, and then at Jamal's regular school. In the Bronx, it's the same thing. Whereas, but like, it's kind of like the reverse. Whereas Jamal isn't trained to outdo everyone else. He's just trained to coast and get along, which is what the teacher was saying. The teacher was like, he does just enough to be a good student in school. And he does just enough not to stand out. 
he doesn't want to stand right. up above his, above his friends as a as a basketballer and he doesn't want to stand up above his friends as a student and so it's like he's dumbing down himself where he knows he'll be recognized by the students but he does he doesn't do it in the in the aptitude test because he knows that the students aren't going to have access to that information so he lets it he shows it all up in the aptitude test because you know it's just between him and the school board it's not the students are going to yeah. find out and the thing is about that he's smart kid he know he knows to perform well exactly he's like, i'm right. going to show all of my colors on this and the thing about that is again that you were saying i'm jordan is like why people have this idea that black people don't won't support each other if we're being exceptional amongst each other you know they don't they don't think that we recognize and accept exceptionalism amongst ourselves you know, like they think that we are always competing and there is competition amongst black people. We know this. And but in school, like you're not concerned about that. And that's something, again, that I think is a trope that's perpetuated in um, media about how black children are at school. And like you have films mm-hmm. like um, Dangerous Minds, where that was kind of like mm-hmm. part of the main storyline, where you had the students that were well, that were that were doing really well in school, were made up, were, were made fun of, um, but in a mean way. Whereas in my experience, yeah. like students would make fun of you if you're smart, not in a mean way. Don't matter what's believed in school, that's a whole different story, but that had nothing to do with being smart or anything. <laughs> but like right. most students would be like, oh, you you want you want to be Mr. Smarty Pants, whatever, but they won't necessarily do it in a mean and well way unless there's an agenda behind it. And what we saw with this school and with this film is um, his friends knew he was smart. They accepted him for being smart. So there was no need to have the whole thing about him dumbing down himself in school because that's that was not the ground word that was laid in the in the story. That was not that was not what we saw being portrayed. If we saw, for instance, that his friends were were mean to him, then we would understand why he was just straight yeah. to a slump. But that's not the setup in the film, so that part never made sense to me. And again, with regards to like how talking about how white people have this perception that black people aren't uh, well read or uh, well or well um, educated. A lot of that, again, has to do with the American. Again, I'm not American, so I, but I'm speaking from speaking to people who I know grew up in America and from what I've observed and from what I've studied and stuff. And mm-hmm. like what people have and from being in living in Canada myself, like the same thing kind of happens here in Canada, where white people have the misconception and the idea that black people aren't. That black, pe- black people are only considered well-read and well-educated if we know white writers. You know, right. they don't right. they don't see mm-hmm. no matter how many accolades black writers or writers from other um, racial ethnicities are um, recognized amongst our own peers unless you are not validated by white people they don't give two walk-ups you know they don't like nope. you mentioned um Maya Angelou you know and Zora Neale Hurston and like those kind of literary writers and those kind of female black female writers like unless they themselves are validated by American media and validated by white learned um um, um uh, writers literature um, and writers and literaturists is that even a word <laughs> literati, <laughs> literati sorry <laughs> um you know unless they're recognized as being like the bomb amongst those people like white people in general aren't going to consider them to be like classes themselves and then it also shows that we as we know something these films also don't like to acknowledge is like many americans are actually very uneducated many americans no. themselves <laughs> aren't no that's that's not the movie. That's not the movie. Not but this movie that. is That's American culture, made, not acknowledging this, that. This movie is made to target a specific white audience. So that is the upper 1, middle class white society, you know? So it's a very, it has a very, very narrow scope of view and a very narrow scope of messaging. 
and that, and that yeah. like, really mm. comes across in this film like you can tell the director and the writer are going from a very narrow and a very myopic way of how they approach the story they're yeah. both approaching it from a place of very privilege. very privileged like like every like every it's either like it's either every scene that takes place in the bronx is meant to paint a very certain picture of like upliftment out of squalor right there is a scene Poverty. there's a scene in this movie that blew my mind where jamal is walking is it jamal home, walking home oh and my there's a god car on fire on fire the and he's Bronx just hadn't burned in 15 years <laughs> and he's just but he's walking like it's tuesday but like even there's if just the, a car even, on fire and he's just walking. the thing is that like, you're thinking even if that was quote-unquote normal as the film is going to think is like isn't that it's not, not feeling the, the, Bronx, the, the Bronx was on fire. That's legitimate. Like, it was, but it was 20 years before the I know, movie but came my thing out. is with these kind of films, is what the writers don't also, what the creators aren't even considering is how these kind of perceptions of the ghetto, because that is supposed to be the ghetto, is like, yeah. they, they're not even considering like something like that happening as a failing of the system. Like where's the oh, for sure. where's sure. where's the where's the fire where's the fire you know the what do you call it? the f- the fire, fire department. department my brain is blanking the fire department should be responding like okay. you but, know like that is a problem I, I, with the system that's a part a problem with the people running the city like you know it, mm-hmm. it's kind of a this a very dystopic way of of approaching um cinema but set in a, in the present at that time like you guys are asking yeah. this is a dystopia <laughs> and you're also asking as if it's a 1992 riots. Or you know the or this our civil rights era, and that kind of right. Stuff. I like that you're looking at it like a civil realist, but <laughs> because that's short. That's actually the problem. The problem is like you know uh, failings in systems. But the the movie is trying to present something that sort of existed. Yeah, they're trying to say because, it's, yes, this is how like, bad it is. True. Like we have cars on fire because the, the, these people are so morally bankrupt. Like this is like they just random yeah. cars like no that's not what happened. yeah or there's projects or the or there's buildings that are like standing like the guy like forester's building that just stand there that were attached to other buildings but all those buildings have been torn My down gentrification. like like i said like i said earlier the yep. bronx had burned that was a thing that happened in the 70s and it doesn't look like that anymore nope. and this movie went out of its way to try to portray a it's it's not false because it happened, but it's a historic anomaly. Yes, yeah, incorrect. Now it's incorrect. So you're trying to. It's like saying like um, it's trying to portray. I mean, you know, it's, it's like trying to portray a like New York City, like Manhattan, mm-hmm. like like there's porn uh uh theaters in, in Times Square. Yeah, sure, there were porn theaters in Times Square in 1975, but this movie takes place in 2000. <laughs> It's a different world. There's people in Fubu and Pele Pele. Like, yeah. it's, it's not. It's not that world anymore. And this movie went out of its way to try to tell you a story of poverty and and, and dystopia, even though like Jamal's doing well. Yeah, his friends were no, doing well. well. His friends were like really, were like well clothed, happy people, happy. Like they're happy at school. One of his friends described Forrester as a Methuselah. Yeah, yeah. And I said, what? Methuselah, Methuselah <laughs> biblical <laughs> reference for goodness sake. So you understood the reference. I need mean, but the thing is, Methuselah is a biblical reference. A very specific biblical reference at that. Because Methuselah is only yeah. re- referenced like twice 
in the beginning of the Bible, and that have to do with the fact that he was the to to this day considered the oldest living human being oldest, on earth. Right. So for them to even pull that reference out, me as a person who goes who used to go to church up regularly up until like two years ago, grew up in the church. I wouldn't even use Methuselah as a reference of somebody old. I would just say a little old. Yeah, you know, like, I was just like, "What is happening with these with these kids?" But sp- so here's a kid I want to talk about too, right? That I just don't understand. Let's go. What's up with Claire? What's up with Claire? Claire in this movie? Who? Because what like, is white, she? That, What's her vibe? Basketballers What's going on? falling in love with white women, white girls, and I blame <laughs> films. I blame films like like this, Finding Forrester, and Saving the Last Dance. Save the last dance, baby. Yeah, Save the last dance. That's what we do. Step well, up. It's worse. So this Step is up. Claire's backstory. This is Claire's black story that they give us as to like have some kind of like commonality between her and Jamal, and that's that her father put himself on the board of trustees in order mm-hmm. to change the rules of the school in right. order for her to be able to go. And I said, Isn't that what white people do? All the time anyway. All the time. You mean, you mean nepotism? <laughs> And it's presented the in a way where it's black like black people can't succeed in America. One of the main reasons <laughs> black people can't succeed in America. But it's presented like, and now I'm an outcast. And it's just like, what do you think and everybody else's people, like all the other parents of that school didn't like bribe or buy, you know, new equipment or do like whatever to like, that's major. Like that's how, that's how George Bush got into college. That's how like all these other people get into Yale and like these prestigious prep schools is Some that their parents of the country. <laughs> yeah you know we'll like give you either if they don't buy their way onto the board of trustees will buy a building you know at a college campus or like donate thousands of dollars to a high school and so it's just like yeah of course you'll take my kid who may or may not yeah. even be qualified to go to this school so for that to be her kind of like tragic like and now i have to sit with the black kid <laughs> in class i know because i, I know. know and i'm just like yeah. what What's and that's like such that's such like young white privilege. That's such teenage white privilege. Like I have to go to this private school because my dad's on the board. But you know I'm giving him hell every day I come in here. Blah 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 blah. I'm like, but so eat do you? My butt. Did you read? So did you read her as like showing interest in Jamal as a way to like spurn her father or like other people? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna date the black guy at school now. One like how do you like that dad? Percent. Yeah, because it is so the other the other student, the, the light skinned biracial student, he was ours there. Why didn't she go for him? She went yeah. for the dark no, skin. Now he's too light Yo, shout out to every time I saw him I was just like she's biracial. <laughs> <laughs> biracial basketball player. I don't know. It's hilarious, <laughs> but yeah, it's so weird. And then, and then Michael Pitt too. I was like, "Why are you in this movie? Are you going to kill somebody?" Right. That's usually what happens when you show up. But he and, like he's like he does this thing where he's like, "Hey man, I'm glad you didn't like give him what he wanted. Don't don't feed me the bullshit, man. Open your third eye, bro." Like, well, he's supposed well, I to smoke be a cigarette on campus. He's I'm supposed hardcore. to be Jamal's friend, I guess. But he's a barely in the movie. B there to get berated by Crawford. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I guess at the end to witness Jamal miss free throws, but then like never does anything again. So I don't know why he was. He doesn't impact Jamal's life at all. No, he's just that. he's just there. And Claire is the same way. Like Claire is there, I guess, to give him something else to do besides write and play basketball. But like, yeah, she doesn't help him at all. 
You know nope. what I mean? Like she has resources and influence. She showed him the and, campus. She showed him the campus, Jordan. Yeah. Come on. He. This is because this is the other dynamic kind of shadowing the whole movie, right? Is that it's an it's another one of these movies where race is talked around but never directly to. There's a lot of like you're black and a writer, and that's about as far as they go. There's never any overt racism at the school. Again, Crawford is the one. Crawford is the only one who's like, no, I can't believe it. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, what's her name? The the girl who run the spelling bee, Zelia Avant-Garde? Yeah. His head would have exploded. He could he could he would have died of a heart what's attack. Her, what's her name? Zalia. <laughs> Zalia. Oh my gosh, you mentioned the name. So that there's another part of this film that made no sense. And it's another Sean Connery line. Where he says that Jamal's name, which is Jamal Wallace, sounds like a name of a, mar- of a marmalade. And I thought that was yeah. utterly hilarious. And I'm like, the writer has no idea what the hell they're talking about. Even has no idea of, no. of, of white history because Wallace is a Scottish name. Yep. W- w- Wallace is as Scottish as the last name Connery. The Jamal is as regular as the first name Sean. Like, but my brother, my own brother is named Sean after Sean Connery. But Wallace is an Irish name. And he's like, oh, that sounds like a marmalade. I'm like, really, sir? That's yeah. a, I, why are you a Scottish man berating your own name? Like, I mean, I know, coming at, you eat marmalade. You eat marmalade. <laughs> Don't play. That's, that, that's one of those that's things the where they're trying to make fun of black names for sounding African. But even in this case, it didn't work right. because it's, a again, a Scottish name. And you have a, a Scottish yeah. person making fun of a Scottish name because it came from a black person. And I'd be like, how do you think I got the last name Wallace, Sean? How do you think I got the last well, name the thing, Wallace, right? Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Williams? How? How? How far is there? Marmalade. Marmalade is the kind of name that a black student will call their uh, but Marmalade is just another word for jam. Marmalade is just another word for jam. And like, what part of the name? You old Marmalade. What part of the name John Wallace sounds like a jam? Because Marmalade is just I another know, jam. Man. It's just another name for jam. That's hilarious. So, like, um, that, I, it, like, it bothers me because I'm like... Yeah. You make- I, I want to bring up one thing that bothered me a lot about this movie, actually. Which it's more about the movie, and again, not about the white saviorism, but it it deals with both of their characters. Which is, if Jamal and Forrester and William Forrester are these talented writers, how come we never hear or see well, no, their words? No, no. Th- this is this is the thing that bothered me the most about this movie, and this is the thing that like I I don't see how they could not have seen it. In, in the scripting the end of the so we never hear jamal's writing right we never see anything yes. that he's written we never get any he, we he, never do but the critical moment of the film the whole turning yes. point yes will Forrester reads his words he makes his speech for him and so the only time we hear jamal's and we don't even really hear it because it's kind of cutting in and out over like rising they, strings. He says like the first couple words of it and then the strings come yeah. in and you just see like the awe-stricken faces of the kids. Yeah. But so his words are basically co-opted by this white person. Boom. And that's, yeah. And that's what like saves the day is that this white man reads his letter and like turns everything around for him. And it's just like. How crazy is that? You know, like that this kid was is supposed genius, 
we never right. hear him read anything at all. We never even get like like a you know like a tracking shot of like you know some of the things that he wrote. Some of or, his words, maybe you know, yeah, even like a voiceover of him like kind of you know do no never never once never any writing and so even when you see like the little notebooks and he's got the red yeah. markings all over the notebooks, you can barely make out what any of the right. words are. So it's just it's crazy that that's the decision that they made that like Forrester is going to save the day by reading Jamal's words without us ever hearing jamal do anything literally the movie is about jamal exploring his voice and we never (laughs) the only time we hear his voice is through sean connery's mouth you know you know what i you know what i think that is because you know the film is set up as this whole um based on the premise of of great 20th century literary works and since so many writers as the the film um uh, posits that it is hard um, near possible to write the great 20th century American literature of that time that sure. Sure. it's nearly impossible so I think even the, for the writer the actual writer of the film Mike Rich like even he himself didn't know what those words would come would, what words would be constituted as a great American piece of literature so they well, so he himself like, you have access so, no I mean like he himself <laughs> well, couldn't come up with his own Sure, yeah. I, passages I, I that would be if for that would fit, you know, like if, like, if for instance, if Jamal had read these words, or even if, um, even if William himself had read these words, like if we, the audience, had heard them, right. we'd be thinking, Is this supposed to be considered great American literature? This just seems like a normal thing. So I think, yeah, well, wouldn't you like, wouldn't you, as the screenwriter, like, attempt or like maybe farm them out? They may have actually tried. That- I, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually tried because for a lot of these films, they do actually write like specs. For, for scenes like this, like yeah. for the book, they would have written actual stuff 100%. within the book for us to read and see. And they were probably, and yeah. they like, they for props, they, they asked to do that. And so they probably did. And they were probably thinking, this just seems like a regular story. So there's nothing super great about it. So that's where I right. think, that's why I actually think happened that they were just like, you know, this wouldn't be considered something if someone read it, it would leave the audience awestruck. So they kind of like took it out of the film. And it, but it asked, but, but, but in doing so, it kind of like, destroys their own premise and idea of the film itself on their, and on yeah. their exactly exactly it's yeah. like i mean because dead you got a movie like dead poet society where you actually hear these people's words i mean i haven't seen the movie but i know you hear these <laughs> people's words like you i know you spent half the but movie they like write, but when they read, people but when they reading poetry from other not well-known poets like yeah. the same edgar Allan poe and other okay. people they weren't okay. original and that's poetry, a lot of this right? movie too is that yeah, a lot of this movie too is just them quoting famous literature back and forth to each other. Yeah. Um It's really empty. Yep, it's right, really yeah. empty. I will say, I mean, two things before we move on to the to the research for this film. Uh one, like, there's a part where I don't even know, I don't know how to interpret this, where Forrester says to Jamal, Don't talk in here like you talk out the there. The racism. Oof. And I was like, uh, so what? <laughs> what are you? What are you saying to him? Because one, I mean, it's not even like Jamal was like. I don't want to hear any of that hibbledy bibbledy. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't like a black exploitation character. He wasn't like Dolomite. <laughs> so like, you know rat soup eating motherfucker. <laughs> you know, he was he was talking like people talk. Like there was nothing yeah. that I heard him saying where I was just like. Okay, yeah, he's a character. Jamal had a pretty he's, great little vocabulary. Yeah, no, Jamal was like, you know, at any other point in their conversation, I didn't hear anything that stood out that said, 
oh, he's 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 code switching or anything like that. I think that was Jamal was Jamal wherever he was. Yeah, so, that, actually, yeah. I, if anything, he did a lack of code switching. Yeah, so for for Forrester to be like, don't talk to me like you talk to your little friends, you know, like he's a black mom. Like I'm not here. <laughs> I'm not with your little friends. I'm on a basketball court. I Jamal. You know, I was just like, whoa. Um, but then also the scene where <laughs> where Forrester collapses in Madison Square Garden, I was like, is that because he's having a panic attack or that he realized he had to go watch the Knicks? Because uh, maybe it was <laughs> he might he may have just done that to get out of uh, whatever game was going on that night. <laughs> like take me somewhere else. <laughs> um, oh man! But let's no let's one's get... safe on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into a little bit of the behind the scenes about this movie. I was, uh, again, surprised. This happens a lot. I couldn't find any spicy, crazy, wild things that anybody had said. I was expecting maybe something, but it seems like this is another just very earnest, like, this is the movie. You know what I mean? Like, we don't see color, yada, yada, whatever. Even Mm. the behind the scenes, you know, like, DVD thing that I watched was just like, what a great story of like writing and literature and like, you know, bonds across generations and all this stuff. So there's not anything too crazy to think about, but um, we will go back to Mike Rich, who had this to say. There was an interview that he did for the L.A. Times when this movie came out. This is his first screenplay. Um, he entered, uh, I want to say, the Academy of Arts and Sciences. They have like a annual like screenplay competition. Um, where they choose five finalists and they kind of get to get get their things. Uh, no, you're good. Uh, <laughs> they they're able to get their scripts, you know, accepted and looked at by agents and whatnot. So he entered that competition. This was the script uh, that got picked mm. up, and so agents and people were calling him. And you know, eventually, again, Gus Van Sant came on, and you know, it was it was done like this. But this is the one quote that stood out to me. Um, at the end of the interview, he says, I never wanted this to be a story about a gallant white guy, Forrester, coming in to save this young black man. He does do that, but more so, Jamal saves Forrester. In an ordinary world, he found someone extraordinary. That applies to both characters, which is just like the word salad of like, yeah, black people, white people. Isn't it amazing when they can come together and do stuff? And you're just kind of like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you, but that's what I'm saying. I think this was a guy in depth, man. This was an earnest attempt to write that story. He also says that he had never been to New York and uh, just wrote this off vibes. Like this is what oh. he thought New York and black teenagers in New York sounded like. And, uh, you know, so take that as you will, but let's go into uh, Carolyn. Let's go into our favorite game here where we like to, Go across all these different um, review sites and and figure out what this movie got and how people felt about this movie. Uh, so, you know how all these different review sites right work, but we're going to start with IMDb. Carolyn, what do you think Finding Forrester currently has on IMDb? I could open it, but I won't cheat. I could look. Um, IMDb <laughs> is mainly a lot of these sites are formed and created by white people mostly white tech men so i would get probably yeah. think i think they probably give it a very yeah. high score at 75 70 percent okay uh cameron what do you think i'm gonna go 7.5 yeah 7 
out of 10, yeah. out of 86,000 views, um, people yeah. like this movie. I think, again, a lot of it comes from this is one of the f- rare Sean Connery appearances of this time. So yeah. people like Sean Connery. He comes out. Um, and it's again, it's a solid performance by him. It's not it's, his it's best a pretty performance basic performance. Like, he doesn't do anything. Like, yeah, he it's didn't a pretty really basic try. performance. Yeah. But if. Yeah, if you like Sean Connery, yeah. he's doing Sean Connery, you know, but yeah, like yeah. it's not anything amazing. But some of the titles of the reviews are On the Resiliency of the Human Spirit, uh, mm-hmm. a wonderful movie with a stunning performance from Connery, a transcendent film. Um, transcendent? Yeah. And where did you go, bro? <laughs> my favorite, where did the James Baldwin spring from? Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a I'm a, I'm a, I have to go. I have to go now. <laughs> if we go over to. Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think that this movie has out of the 100%? Let me see. Critics rating? The critics ratings tend yep. to be a little bit below. For these types of films, I'm from, I would say, mm-hmm. 2000. A little bit lower than the audience rating. But still, hey, because Rotten Tomato then, compared to now, way more white people... Like yep. the number of the the number of yep. critics of color, like it's not a big huge number now, but in two thousand, <laughs> probably non-existent. Um, eighty-five to ninety percent critics re- critics rating, an audience right. rating. I would say probably okay. 60, 65 percent. Okay, I'm gonna go a little lower. I'm gonna say critics seventy mm-hmm. percent. And then the user is like, yeah, like seventy five percent. I feel like there. I feel like everybody felt the same way. Critics seventy four percent. Audience score seventy nine. Ah, so I was close. So I was uh, off by like five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's weird because when you look at the reviews themselves, there's a lot of back and forth. There's people who came to. Gus Van Sant from his earlier film. So they're just like, what is what yeah. is he doing? Like, what is happening here? This is Does not... he know black people? Yeah, but even like this is so far from the films that he was doing when he came out, uh, yeah. which were kind of these like, you know, genre pushing yeah, and kind of art tour. So that's where that's where if anything, that's why I, I would say the that's why I said it the for the critics rating in particular it would have been 80 to 85% because they would have been expecting mm a more art house film that he was used to doing yeah. so yeah. for this is more of a general audience film more like a, you at, at the beginning you said kind of like a straight to dvd or v at the time vhs type of film and yeah. so like they yeah. would have been more disappointed say, oh my god it's not something um genre bending it's not an author <laughs> type of film yeah. like, it's kind of a pedestrian the word batman would have been used would have been pedestrian so they would yeah. rate it harsher than i think than a right than an audience but they still wouldn't like panic completely because it's because like Gus Van Sant was kind of in his bag at that time so that's yeah. why I kind of said yeah. you get probably 80% for critics ratings that kind of yeah mm. well you know we have to go to our favorite on amazon.com uh, what do you think this movie has out of five stars Carolina you know, I don't really look at amazon ratings but I probably say no one does except for actually no a lot of people do back then <laughs> except for out of five stars, three and a half. Oh, people are still rating this movie. Today. Rating it today, so, I would still say yeah. probably the same thing. Probably three and a half for three and a half stars, four stars. Cameron, no, I'm going four and a half. You know what it is, baby. It's five stars. What? Five, five stars. stars. Four star. 
technically, you know what it is. <laughs> technically, it's four point eight. Uh, okay, four point eight. Four point out of out of two thousand eight hundred eighty nine reviews, but it's eighty six percent. Eighty six percent. I'm here looking at my dog. You know how Yoko. we do, Yoko? Do you believe that? She's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. It's their favorite writer movie. It's uh, like a film that touches you in the heart, like all of that general stuff. Why people um, love these kind of films? Again, they, these films they, weren't really they fun. Do. Because it they makes them feel them. good. It makes them feel like we're not so bad. Yeah. Uh, going out on the section on the positive note, Rob Brown, this is, again, his first movie ever. He auditioned to be an extra because he just needed $300 to pay his phone bill. And then Gus Van Zandt was like, I think you're the lead. Like, I think you should be the lead of this movie. And so that from there, happen, man. He's, had, he's had a pretty successful career since then. He's done a lot of he's TV and, and, and continue to work. So if there's any good from this movie, it is that Rob Brown is is out here acting and, and doing things. So yeah, shout out, shout out, Rob shout Brown. Out to him. Yeah. The last project I saw him in was the Blind Spot show, and that one was yep. like an action yep. kind of FBI ish kind of film. Like I like, I I it was like three four seasons. I saw the first two seasons. He was pretty good. He had a main role, so yeah, good on him. I think he's doing voice acting now too. He does um mm-hmm. voice work now yeah. too. He's on two K. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He's the coach on two K. <laughs> well. Let's take a second to think about how to reimagine this film, um, because I think there there are numerous pathways to go, uh, yeah. and there's one that I'll share at the end. But Carolyn, uh, do you have any ways that you could think about making Finding Forrester without the white savior? Uh, if it had been, I, I, I would like to think it had been directed and written by a black person. One, like we would have gotten more of Jamal's home life. Too, we would have seen more of the dynamics between him and his mom and him and his brother. We would have gotten to see more discussions between him and his teacher. I I think that we didn't get to see any interactions with him and his teacher, really, which I think it would have been nice to see, like, the classroom setting, like, the teacher discussing him as a student and, like, the kind of work. And, like, because if he wanted to be a writer, I like to think he would have gone to his teacher for some kind of advice before, Mm. you know, as he would have think, what do you think about this manuscript and this story that I'm writing? So that's what I would like to see. And, like, to, and that even if he wanted to set it in a, in a, in a, prep school like that it would have been i'm trying to for the, for the school the way setting it would still be predominantly white students white faculty right but i would i think i would have liked to see jamal again like discussing the, those settings with his family and his mom you know like because they it's such a huge decision they made to send him to this private school and like, there's no one around for him to talk to. Like, he would have been coming home to talk to his mom about what happened. You know, we would have right, seen yeah, him talking right, about yeah. Crawford to his mom and say, like, you believe this teacher was saying this and that to me, and that kind of stuff. Like that, I like, I didn't, I didn't like that. So I think that's why it would change about that in particular. Like, we would see him talk to his mom or even about his to his brother about that. Like, we saw the brother go to um to to William and say, like, yo, my brother's career and my brother's school career and his future is in jeopardy because he kept this he's keeping this promise for you. Like I th- I always found that scene kind of like out of the way. Like how is he just how is he just going up to William just like this and like talking to him like like we didn't even know we weren't even aware that William knew what his brother even looked like or that his brother knew yeah. who William was because like we didn't see his brother interact with him on the basketball court are talking about the man in the building or whatever like from what we understood the brother just worked and he came home like we never got to see their home life and like him being aware of his surroundings and the people that he spoke to 
So that's again something yeah. that it would change. And I'm definitely to save it from the white savior trope. Um the whole leaving him the apartment building. I want to have, I want them to have a discussion about that. Like them saying, mm-hmm. them discussing, do we keep it? Do we sell it? What do we do? Like this is a huge property. Like I that's how we can make some good like, money. Yeah. That's that's where right. that's a discussion to definitely have. Like for sure. And if and definitely to take it from being a white a, a white savior trope, make William black. Yep. Mm. Yep. That's the whole mm. crux of the whole story. If William was black, the context mm. of everything yeah. that happens would be completely different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh Cam, what do you think? All right, so I, I I'm thinking about taking William as a physical presence out of the movie entirely mm. and just having him having Jamal be like this have it be actually Jamal's story. Like, uh, the thing I hate about this fucking poster is that three-fourths <laughs> of it is just Sean Connery's face <laughs> over top of, like, Because, he, because he, was the, like, he was the marketing for this film. Like, because, oh, again, sure. this was Rob's oh, first not... film, right? So they got to market the person who makes the film, which is Sean Connery. They're like, how are we going to market this film? How are we going to sell this film? How are we going to get people to see this totally. film? Sean Connery. So I understood that part of the marketing. Like, that's, like, that is, that's marketing 101 right there. Mm-hmm. Totally, but the story is about Jamal. The story is bookended by black yeah. people. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, how do we do this? Well, I say take him out as a physical presence, right? Have him still reading books, maybe by this fictitious great American author, right? Or just great American authors in general. Mm. Because the the crux of the story is like whether or not these white people at this like, you know, academy really believe that he's as good as a talent as he purports himself to be so like have him reading these authors ingesting this stuff and actually dealing with the racism of like or like the inferred racism of like these people that he you know deals with at his school Mm -hmm. you know you can still have Crawford be the hating ass English teacher you can still have you know his friends like wonder if he is this good of a writer but and you can still have scenes like him, like, playing basketball and, like, making basketball decisions, you know, him based and, on him his... Anna Paquin playing basketball on the He's rooftop. Not. Oh, yeah, oh, keep yeah. that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That scene is so sweet. Actually, actually, yeah, get rid of that. Because that scene is speaking to the whole, Don't like, even black keep it on the DVD. Uh, as sexual objects with like, women. That was so gross. For real, him putting his hands on her hips like that. I was like, she was like, needs 0% of that. She was like, Jamal. When we were playing basketball on the roof, was that all that was? Just take it out completely. He has yeah. nothing Jamani, to the story. Get your marmalade ass out of here. He has nothing to the story. Take her out and she, the, nothing about the story changes. She's completely unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yo, take your marmalade ass off to the Upper East Side. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Now, take take out those things and actually have him reckon with, like, dealing with, you know, this milk toast racism amongst the higher class. Have him deal with that. Have him reckon with that stuff. I think that I think that's a much more potent story, something that people can actually deal with, something yeah. that people can actually relate to, is perception in general. Not necessarily racism, but, like, intelligence. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a... I think that's a well-rounded story and one that doesn't have to be too awkward either. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's my take. Well, I'll hit you guys with two. I'll hit you with mine. And then oh. 
this is actually going to get remade as a television show uh, for, I think, Peacock through Steph Curry's deal. It would be Steph Curry's company with the 50 Uh, shots. So I'll I'll do mine and then I'll tell you what the plan is for this one. So it's very interesting because so much of this movie, Mike Rich, you know, um, Sean Connery, everybody keeps talking about Forrester as an allusion to J.D. Salinger, right? He only wrote one novel, which was Catcher in the Rye, greatest American novel. Then he kind of isolated himself. Nobody saw him again, right? I don't really believe it it being the greatest American novel, but we can. That's another conversation for another day. Here's a question, though, because same exact thing happened to Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. And that book is the same book. Yes. And you easily could have had a Ralph Ellison Native Son, illusion. by the way. Native Son being that book that I'm talking about. Oh, you're talking about... Wait, are you talking about Richard Wright? I'm talking about Richard Wright. I'm talking about Native Son. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Invisible Man. By Invisible Ralph Man. Oh, no, no, yeah. no. Invisible Man is the same yeah, one. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm back. I'm back. We're back. We're back. We're back. I've read both of these books. I swear to God. Yeah. I swear to God I've read both of these books. I do get them confused, though. Oh, no, yeah. Well, they're, they're, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but... Similarities. Yeah. Um... You know, Ralph Ellison famously did the same thing. He wrote Invisible Man, which is one of the greatest novels of all time, and then never wrote another novel again. Right. Actually, um, actually a great American novel. Yeah. So I would take it a step further. I would have Jamal, kind of a similar story, right? Maybe not being uh, embarrassed about being smart, but like he's <laughs> he's a kid <laughs> who's, who's, you know, he's got these aspirations, whether it be sports or writing and literature. And, you know, one day in class, they read this book, which is, you know, again, considered to be the greatest American novel, yada, 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 right? There's a guy that maybe lives in his building who's a who's an older black man or black woman, either way, um, you know, that he kind of interacts with. And, like, they see him reading this book and they start acting really weird. Um, and you find out that they they're the author of the book, but because they were black they had to use a pseudonym to get it published. And so everybody just assumed that they were a white person. And so okay. they could never publish another book because if they come out and say, oh, it was me, <laughs> you know, people would be like, you? Oh, maybe this oh, wasn't I... as good as we thought it was. You know, maybe right. this was... But because the book gains all this acclaim, it's just like, maybe it's better if I just don't say anything and just let the book be, you know, this this mysterious thing. And so Jamal... And this person, again, it could be a man, it could be a woman, you know, you have them kind of navigate all of those, you know, things about like, you know, the life that this person had to give up in order to keep, you know, the acclaim that they got from this novel, Mm -hmm. what it means to be a black, you know, author. Because I think the one thing that this movie doesn't get at all, right? And I think for me, this is how I view it. And I think, you know, Toni Morrison kind of had similar views. I absolutely think that black art and like art by marginalized people, its goal, sole goal is to disrupt white supremacy, Mm. right? Like the goal Mm -hmm. of art outside of the white gaze is to completely dismantle that gaze uh, Mm -hmm. to show multiple, you know, points of view because everything that gets filtered into it and everything that substantiates it and holds it up just means it gets to continue. But everything that totally shows you how false of a premise it is you know like it disrupts that mm-hmm. like just chips away right and so like the fact that jamal's art is shown to be um a part of and not like directly attacking that establishment i think is a is a mistake you know for this movie because yeah. 
it's not that he again needs to be you know langston hughes or you know anything like that but just like his work is not following this literary canon but is directly you know like establishing or like more in line with again a tony morrison a june jordan uh james baldwin you know somebody like that and Mm -hmm. so having him kind of navigate that alongside this person who completely had to give up you know on on their dreams because just the way that the literary world can be and the way that they view black voices i think was a much more interesting movie um Mm. so that's my version this is the version that steph curry's team is producing and they are um coming at it with with writers tj brady and uh rasheed newson who are both from the shy um and it will be directed by tim story and the i I heard that (laughs) the premise is uh a homeless 16 year old orphan who is jamal uh whose basketball skills open the door to an important school i don't know um uh and he will like the the forester character is going to be changed to a black woman uh so a lesbian author whose career was ruined by scandal so i don't Mm -hmm. know what that means (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can't really tell you yeah, what yeah. that's gonna be like, but that's I can't really this is off of that. Again, this is this is the thesis of our of our entire podcast is reimagining these films through a black and PLC lens. So I guess this is what is happening, but I can't really tell you if that's gonna be it it sh- it should be better than this movie, but I don't yes, know if it's yes. gonna be yes. good, you know. That's, any, that's just, bare minimum. That's bare minimum. Yeah, yeah. Um well, speaking of this movie, we need to put it on our caucasity ranking system. Um, Carolyn, we've got three levels of caucasity. Uh, the first level is shorts in the winter. And so I'm sure, you know, living in Canada, it is a thing <laughs> where white people, they just, they love to do it. You know, it's cold it's outside. True. You got, you got on your, you got your North face on, you know, you're all bundled up and here comes Chad uh, in his, his shorts and Birkenstocks just living his life and you're just it's not hurting you right it's not doing any harm to you it's not a violence but it is a curiosity Mm -hmm. you're wondering why this is happening what made you think this was a good idea maybe you should reconsider your life choices you know what i mean but like it for us it's not harm it's just more like oh that's interesting it's a yeah it's an Mm -hmm. oddity yeah cameron what's the second level uh the second level is okay this movie is touching my hair now so, so this movie probably wanted to know something about you and decided on its own merit to just touch your hair and instill an act of violence upon you because yeah. guess what? You didn't you didn't want that. <laughs> you didn't want your hair to be touched without question, <laughs> you know, or your body in general. It is basically inflicting an act of violence upon you. It is inflicting itself upon you. It's not quite damaging. Like, I'm, I'm not bleeding. But inside, I'm hurt. Yeah, yeah. Inside, I'm bleeding. <laughs> um, the third level of capacity this week <laughs> is a is a is a tie uh, between one yeah. Elon Musk, forty four billion dollars to to purchase Twitter. Curious decision, mostly because, as people have stated, forty four billion dollars, dog. Like you could do a lot. You could do a yeah. lot of things with that. Why are you buying? A social media company and what you trying to do world hunger for like a fraction of that yeah or even just like the the idea that you're buying this out of spite because you can 
because you don't like what people say about you on Twitter. Like it's maybe the whitest thing <laughs> one really could is. do, you know, it just really like, is. you know, I, Oh, like you're kicking me out of this hotel. I'm going to buy it. I'm you know, buy it. And, 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 and everyone's going to say my name on the door. Was yeah. it in a movie? So <laughs> maybe a woman, I think that was from a the woman did that. Was it? Oh, no, literally the beginning of crazy rich Asians. Yeah. Michelle Yeoh's character oh, yeah, did that. Yeah, Remember, they she went into she went to England and they were like, "You can't come into this um hotel because she was wet and rain because she was raining on. She didn't have an umbrella and she turned around and bought the whole hotel." Yep. Well, it was it was in the Dark Knight too, where the the two models want to swim in the fountain, and Bruce Wayne's like, "Oh, oh yeah, that's not allowed. I'm just going to buy yeah. this place." So you know, as if like, as policy. if hotel acquisitions don't take weeks or months. I know. I know. He just wrote a check. Uh, but anyways, uh, so there's that. And then there's also just the, the whole Netflix scandal where I didn't even Ta-dum. know that Tadum was a thing, but Tadum was started by Netflix as kind of a, 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 a separate brand to you know talk about media and talk about mostly Netflix. It was basically things. a content uh, firm, but uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so they had hired a bunch of mostly black female black people, black uh, women to, you know, staff this thing. And this was just a month ago. And then they just closed it and uh, fired all of them. So around 25 people were laid off uh, earlier this week. And it was just, it was out of the blue and done in a way that was just like. Just oh, disgusting. Oh. Just like it, it showed their lack of faith. It wasn't even a lack yeah. of faith because the black Netflix, women they hired Netflix for never. It wasn't a, for diversity. To me, position. for me, that whole situation wasn't even about faith, and it was more than a month ago. Tudum premiered in launched, I should say, in um, I think the end of November, beginning of December. That's how badly promoted it was, but that's a whole different discussion. Yeah. yeah. But when it was a lack of right. faith, it was just the fact that Netflix never intended to do anything with it besides making it into a content farm. I got issues yeah. with that company. Yeah. Again, another discussion for another day, but I don't trust them. But yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But, but meanwhile, we gotta get a red notice too, I'm sure. So yeah. strap in all. So real real quibby energy with that one where it's just like, <laughs> you know, y'all are gonna love the oh, you don't? Well, I guess I'm it's sorry. over. Oops. You know. Oops, uh, Oops. Except in this case, a lot of black people, specifically black women, lost their jobs that they were they were hired away from jobs that they already had. So they were right. like it wasn't even that they just applied for it. They were like specifically pitched for and like asked to come on guaranteed you know yeah now they're just like "Mm, okay you know we're as 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 much as we said we wanted you you're easily disposable we're just gonna throw you away um so obviously as you can tell this is the ultimate level of violence this is just intentional you know like cruelty intentional just like you know exactly what you're doing and you don't care lack of care yeah like you do it again if given the chance, right? And so, where do you think Finding Forrester lands on that ranking system? I'd probably say passing shorts in winter because mm-hmm. it, it to me the film doesn't have like there are films where you could tell there's malicious intent behind the cultural appropriation and the representation of black people on screen. In, for instance, books like um, films like Green, the Green Book. And Django and um, Django Unchained and those kind of yeah. films. Whereas those kind of films, I would say, are like um, <laughs> Elon Musk acquiring. Forget no, not even Elon. Yeah, Elon <laughs> Musk and Netflix acquiring 
platforms important for people of color or using people of color to promote your content. Whereas I think this was just like a extreme lack of understanding of black culture, black identity, black family, black education. Yeah. And also I would also say a, a fundamental lack of understanding of American culture and politics because so much of those things are intertwined, like especially if you're talking about the education system and what is constituted mm -hmm. as a great literary literary art, as we were discussing. So I would say it's uh <clears throat> it's more of a like, what were you doing? What was the point of this? Why, why would you do this? Because as again we said, we can tell this film was written strictly from a point of view of white privilege. Like, sure and from people who I, who I do mention didn't I've never been to New York but like just watching this film even I with what I understand of New York and from people who live in New York and have been raised in New York like I can tell this film was written by someone not only who has white privilege but who has a very skewed and privileged idea of what New York is or a particular mm -hmm. parts of New York because the thing that's always been fascinating to me about New York is when people want to show like the bad sides in New York, they want to show the projects, the ghettos where people, black people and marginalized people live. And when it comes to showing New York has been this up class and, and forward and progressive think and, forward and progressive place, they show like where the rich people live. Whereas from my understanding from people of color and from white people who do live in different parts of New York, like the very rich and upper class parts of New York actually consider some of the dirtiest. Like when you look at when you look at their subway system, subway system, it's like the ghetto. <laughs> like people that like, you know, like black yep. people say, "Oh my God, it's the ghetto." And but the, and the funny thing to me is the when many films want to show like the upper class and like the rich parts of New York, they film in Toronto. Yep. They film in they film did. in yeah. back. This movie did that, yeah. And I'm like, you're that you're you're that you're they're skewed ideas of what New York is based on where they film. Like you want to show the clean parts of New York, they film in cities like Toronto. You're not filming in Manhattan. You're not filming on. Nope. Uh, on nope. You could just go to Cobble Hill or. Green yeah, but they don't because they know they <laughs> if, if they really wanted to show the real that. New York, they wouldn't. They 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 know it would. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the idea of uh, of American exceptionalism and what they think foreigners uh, and what they think foreigners believe New York is supposed to look yep. like. So they they project a particular image for particular types of films and for particular stories. So I would say this is a pants in the winter, moving on to the just edging on the um. Uh, what was the what was the level above that one? Touching my and hair. Touching my hair. So it's just on the edge of touching my hair. Like the hand is reaching out to touch the hair. Yeah. It doesn't fully land, but it's hovering. It, it didn't fully land in the afro, but it's hovering. Yeah, yeah, it's coming for it. Uh, Cameron, what do you think? Uh. That rap was touching my head. <laughs> Damn sure. <laughs> I did not fuck with that rap. I, I, I actually, I turned on the movie and I was like, oh, hell no. And then I stopped watching the movie. That's that's another Spike thing. <laughs> you're, talking about this, like, you're talking about the Spike Lee kind day. of thing. Like, that's a very Spike Lee kind of thing. You have, like, the rap. Or, you yeah. know, like, this. Yeah. It is, but it probably would have been a good rap, at least. <laughs> He's got taste, like the roots were in bamboozled at least. Like, come on, yeah. Yeah, Spike Lee would have got like actual rappers to he do that. Got some he would have got Talib to do that. Like, and Busta Rhymes was but right yeah, there, I right? Think... You can tell that brain that was not written by Busta. Right. right there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, but this movie's like not it rolls right off my shoulder, you know? Like it's not it's not offensive enough. You're the man now, dog, and come on. That you're the man now, dog, and that <laughs> that rap 
<laughs> touching my head, but the rest of this movie is not even close. Yeah, I I I would agree. I I would agree definitely with you, Carolyn, in terms of like I I I can't quite give it touching my hair, but like it is. There's a lot of things in and around it that make me yeah. uncomfortable. Specifically, again, the like adulation of the white gaze and the and the idea that you know upward mobility means whiteness and and moving into white spaces and like that's what you should be aspiring to as a black and person. their lack of like outright defining that yeah because the assumption is way worse right than just actually uh reckoning with it yeah i mean even the idea that people are continually surprised that jamal knows things you know i like... wanted to smack the shit <laughs> i, I would have smacked the shit out of a teacher for shaw bitch here's the problem shakespeare right? dummy like if crawford was smart he would just take credit for jamal right he would say oh look God. what two months in my class did for this kid i am a genius yeah. give me a raise you know what i mean like <laughs> look look what look how great of a teacher i am but instead he was like no there's no way <laughs> you can get out of my class you know so it's just like oh hating ass yeah come on dog that, well, that's what hating gets you but uh, Solidarity ass motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so i think it's it's not quite the offense that you know, like you were saying, Green Book or White Man's Burden or, you know, so many of these other movies have been. But it is like on that bordering of like just one more one more thing from Sean Connery, you know, one more like weird kind of like a racial uh, transgression at the school, I think would have would have pushed it over the top for me. Yeah. Um, well, Carolyn, thank you so much for, for talking with us. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. Tell everybody where they can find you on the internet, uh, what they should be looking out for that you're working on. Um, and I guess if we, we can, we can work it in this way, give everybody a recommendation, uh, that something they should watch instead of finding Forrester. Uh, okay. Let me see if I was to start with a recommendation. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be in the same vein. It could just be, it could be anything. Like if you want to find something that's a literary movie, close to it you know you could do that but otherwise it's just something that you like that has people i would it. say watch the film for your virgin by radabang yes oh yeah i love that, that film that, that film is so that. good it's so good that's the themes that's the themes honestly it has, yeah. it has all of the thoughts about the different the, the class structure socioeconomics education literature rapping proper rapping mm -hmm. Proper, proper rapping. rapping you know um shot in black and white the cinematography is beautiful like her cinematographer i actually yes. interviewed mm. the cinematographer yeah. um for for carolyn talks at sundance 2020 and you can find it on my podcast on um podcast sure. um uh so i'm segueing from that you can um i'm as they said at the end of my rotten tomatoes approved critic um i am a podcaster journalist and youtuber I do so many things because I just love talking about film. I love writing film. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can find my writing, pub, my published writing on my artery page. Um, that stuff is linked in my Linktree account on my Twitter and Instagram. Um, my podcast that I co-host, so here's what happened, podcast with my co-host, Lanisha Campbell, can be found on ACAST, Google, I think I think it's also on Google Podcasts as well. Um, it's also platform on bywaythepodcast.com. That's a monthly podcast. And my sub podcast from that, Caroline Talks, where 
it's my dog, <laughs> where I talk to film mm-hmm. creatives about their work in the industry, what inspires them, and um, the, the, the good sides and the bad sides of filmmaking in the industry. Um, Karen, that's, again, Karen Talks on phone on butwhythepodcast.com. The thing with Karen Talks is interesting because what I do for that in particular, I love to speak to indie filmmakers, and um, and which a lot of critics don't actually do. A lot of critics are more concerned with talking to like the big name actors and directors and covering the big, um, the big projects, I like to use Caritas to kind of like talk to and uplift independent filmmakers from different backgrounds and from like all over the world. Um, a lot of that coverage has to do with film independent and smaller film festivals like the New York Asian Film Festival and Real Asian Film Festival. Um, I also have my Asian drama podcast where called Beyond the Romance. That one is also found on ACAST and aboutwaythepodcast.com. I do reviews of occasion. I also I occasionally do Asian films, but it's predominantly dramas from Korea, Japan, China, Taiwan, China, mainland China, Hong Kong, and um, occasionally Thai. And that is on in podcast format and on YouTube on my YouTube channel, Carolyn Hines. I'm also a member of the African American Film Critics Association. So Carolyn talks for during for Carolyn talks. I, I'm a member of the of their virtual roundtable. So I speak to Black film creatives in the film and television industry. And I'm also a co-host also here of, oh, I do so much. I'm also the co-host of Saturday Night Sci-Fi, where my co-hosts and I like, um, and our, what I call our peeps, we like tweet um, genre films, sci-fi genre films, and occasionally shows from different streaming platforms, not just Netflix, we do Tubi, we do um, Disney Plus, um, Peacock, anywhere we can find films and TV shows that are interesting. We recently started, as we recorded today, we started our Discord because, you know, Elon Musk is trying to take over Twitter. So we're looking for other avenues. So we yeah. started a Discord channel that we're going to test right <laughs> that. Um, you, you can find that hashtag, again, in my Twitters. You can you follow the hashtag Saturday Night Facebook for upcoming announcements. And I also have the hashtag um, dramas with Carrie where I like tweet the dramas some of the dramas that I'm watching and I comment on them and I do my live tweet threads and those are fun and I think that's it I also do occasionally once a month uh, k-pop top 10 with my friend Joseph where we list our favorite songs of k-pop uh, Korean music of the month and that's it <laughs> that was a lot <laughs> but that was it that's it <laughs> it's to put your work in though it's beautiful to see yeah definitely that's check out all of that stuff that sounds a lot Sounds amazing. Yeah, you know, keep keep working. Karen, uh, I guess we could do the same thing. Like, tell everybody if you've got a recommendation and then, you know, where they can find you. Uh, let me see. Recommendation. I mean, 40-year-old version is so good. It's hard to top. Um, yeah, it's hard to top. Um, uh, watch, uh, oh, uh, Akilah and the Bee. There you go. Mm-hmm. Go watch Akilah and the Bee. It's about an intelligent black person. It's a pretty decent movie. Um, I thought it was cute when I saw it. Yeah, I thought it was cute when I saw it. That's pretty much like all. <laughs> that's, that's my entire thoughts on Akilah and the Bee that it was cute. Um, but you can find me uh, at the Blipster eleven thirty eight on Twitter and IG. You can follow my sketch comedy group Two Karen with Love on uh, IG and Twitter. Uh, and we also have a YouTube channel. That's where our dummy videos are. Go check those out. And I do have some film festival news coming up. Probably the embargo will lift by the next time we record. So keep keep your ears open. For sure. Um, 
I would say Love Jones um, is going to yes. be having its 25th anniversary uh, coming up soon. And uh, on Twitter, they're going to have a Spaces Convo with the Criterion Collection with the director. Um, yeah, because it's joining the collection. Yep. So it's on the Love Jones is now part of the Criterion Collection. Rightfully I, so. Yeah, I, I feel say, like that's definitely a black film that should be in there. Yeah, I would say so. I'd say watch Love Jones if you're looking for you know that literary uh, feel. I mean, it's obviously you know a romance as well, but like a poetry. Yeah, but it's it's a movie that I feel like is part of that black canon, right, of films. Oh, 100%. Um, and definitely exists in a way that shows black life and black culture, um, you know, not as like, wow, can you believe, you know, black people do poetry and, you know, like have these kind of conversations, but more just like, yeah, black intelligence, black, you know. You do it like, really well. <laughs> yeah, you know, black professionals, black people, like living in these spaces. You know, you could call it a little bougie, but like, you know they're not anomalies like they're just regular black right. folk doing what black people do uh so i would say watch love jones if you don't have it in the criterion collection um you know i mean you have you don't have to get it that way but you know i would say any anything that you can do to kind of support black film in those spaces particularly is always always a good way to go um Woo. but i'm jordan clark you can find me on twitter jrsosa18 instagram jrsosa18 um the DC milestone initiative is still going. We're flying out to Burbank this week to go and, hey. uh, you know, be there on the Warner brothers, you know, a lot and, uh, do some work there in person. So that should be cool. Um, also have comic stuff coming out. Got Samurai Sonia with dynamite comics, uh, coming Ooh. out in June. That's coming out. I have a date now it's June 15th. So if you want to go to your comic book stores, uh, and pre-order that, you can put that on your pull list um all right but you can find us wherever you podcast um you can also find us on twitter at white underscore pod if you want to you know continue the conversation there if you want to see what we're talking about in terms of behind the scenes on these movies or you know get further recommendations from us you can also write to us at white people won't save you pod at gmail.com if you have your own movie recommendations if you've seen any caucasity out in the world that you want to send our way or <laughs> uh you know just want to talk with us about you know film and all that stuff Hopefully we'll have some live show stuff to announce soon. Hopefully we'll have some merch to some, announce soon. Some merch stuff. Um, hopefully we'll have Patreon stuff to announce soon. But we've got all that stuff in the works. Uh, but that's it for us this week. We'll be back next week mm. with more podcasts. Oh, and I forgot to mention my Preach. handles. I don't know who else we have. My Twitter handle at oh, CarrieCNH. That's C A R E C N H one two. It's the same from my Instagram. For sure, we'll check Caroline out there, um, and come back and check us out Bye. next week. Peace. Peace, dogs. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. <laughs>